on today's episode of Mile Higher. They weren't trying to take pictures, they were just trying to get light. When you're desperate, I mean, you're gonna try everything that you possibly can. But today, we're diving into an extremely mysterious case. Chris Kremers and Lizanne Froon. The fact that they're continuing to call these numbers, they're clearly in need of help. Well, that's what's so hard about this is no one knows what state they were in. No one knows what they were thinking. No one knows what could have been happening. Which again, this is kind of sloppy work because if you're really dealing with evidence like this, you should be taking a copy of things and manipulating the copies as opposed to the originals. There are people that think it could have been deleted by the Panamanian authorities. What do you guys think about this? Maybe they were still on the trail, but night hit sooner than they thought. And coming back down the trail, they just made a wrong turn at some point. I don't know what to make of that. There are so many possibilities. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Heart Podcast, episode 274. I am your host, Kendall. And I am Josh. We're joined by our producers, Julia and Janelle. Hello, Hello ladies. Hello, ladies and hey. gentlemen. We're fresh off of our amazing Halloween episode, which was so much fun. Oh, yeah. Fun times. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. I <laughs> love getting into character. You which, were amazing, I have to say. Oh, thank you. You Your acting skills really came out. I was super impressed. I don't know. Sometimes if I'm really into the character, I can just channel that that person, it feels he like. He came home as Kenneth Copeland. It, it just continued out really on. Good. And you came home as well as... Eh, <laughs> as Paula. Paula. That's right. Paula yeah. White, right? Paula, the wig really hurt. She had to come off right away, but yeah, it wasn't the most comfortable disguise. But yeah, it was funny seeing our daughter's reaction to your makeup too. <laughs> I know <laughs> I just came home with like, the old man's makeup. Wait a second. So yeah, it was fun. Yeah, good times. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed that. But today we're diving into an extremely <sighs> mysterious case. Yes. But oh there's just God. so many different elements to this. There's so many different ways to look at this that. It'll have your head spinning by the end of it, and it'll be hard to even tell up from down because there's just so many different things that that factor into this particular case, which is on the missing Dutch girls mm -hmm. who... Chris Kremers and Lizanne Froon. And this case is so complex. It's going to be a really long episode, so hang in there because we have so much to go over. It's all really fascinating stuff. Um, there's definitely all types of theories when it comes to this case. There are different communities that believe different things. And we're going to kind of explore all the different theories and also debunk some of the information that's out there because there is a wild of information, a wild amount of information that, you know, is just straight up incorrect. There's tons of misinfo out there and rumors, like, gossip, rumors, speculation. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was a really difficult one to sort through. Big shout out to our researcher, Julia, for digging through all of that. Huge shout out. Yes. It's this one, one we've been working on for a long time. Actually, yeah. it's been on our schedule for months and just mm -hmm. we we haven't, you know, we haven't had the time to fully vet it out and research it the way that we wanted to. Yeah, so we've we been slowly sure. chipping away at it over time. And yeah. finally, today's the day that we're going to do the deep dive into this one. And hopefully it's one of the most in-depth um, covers of this case that's out there because there's a ton of just on youtube at least there's a lot of 
coverage of this that just is either glazes over it or is just riddled with misinformation mm-hmm. and, and rumors mm-hmm. that um, we've we've done extensive research to to sort out. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely been a lot. So with that being said, I say we dive right in because we have so much to go over today. Yes, buckle in. This this is going to be a long long episode it might might take you a few days uh, for many of you to get through this one but we promise it's worth <laughs> a few it days i mean some some people can only handle so much of our voices yeah. for so long they're <laughs> like 30 minutes i tap out come back mm-hmm. to it others but it, i will mean just... it's so interesting and hang in there till the end because we're going to really dive into these theories because there are so many there are so many possibilities I don't know. It's, there's, there's, it's really an interesting one. There's just a lot of creepy elements. There's there's weird photographs that were taken mm-hmm. um, in their last days. Oh, there's so creepy these photos. I mean, and a missing the, photo. I mean, we'll explain it all. It's it's pretty wild. Before I dive into this, I do want to say that there is a lot of foreign pronunciations in here that we will likely struggle with between <laughs> yeah, the Dutch and the Spanish pronunciations. We have all of the correct pronunciations, so we're gonna do our very best to pronounce everything correct, but bear with us because there is quite a few in this particular case. So like we mentioned, the two individuals we're gonna be focusing on today are two Dutch women named Chris Kremers and Lizanne Froon. Lizanne Froon was born on September 24th, 1991 in Amersfoort, Utrecht, Netherlands to her parents, Diney and Peter Froon. She had an older brother named Martijn. Lizanne was shyer and more on the introverted side. She was a very kind girl and had a somewhat small circle of friends. Her brother described her as sort of a homebody, and her parents said she was quiet, an empathetic girl who loved spending time with her family. And she also absolutely loved music, especially the band Coldplay. I mean, who doesn't love Coldplay? I love Coldplay. Yeah, they're one of my, uh, the first first band, secular bands I listened to growing up. Secular. Mm-hmm. But Lizanne was an athlete, and she was really tall at six foot three. And at university, she was a star volleyball player on the school's team. She was also dipping her toes into other athletic pursuits like mountaineering and even skydiving. But Lizanne actually had to quit volleyball due to an injury to her foot or leg. But she was able to recover and she continued to be a very athletic person. As for her quieter side, it seems like she started to come out of her shell more after she befriended a coworker, an outgoing young woman named Chris. Chris Kremers was born on August 9th, 1992, also in Amersfoort, to her parents, Ruli, Hurt, and Hans Kremers. She had an older brother named Schorz and a younger brother named Tien. As for Chris, she was a very confident, spontaneous girl. She definitely was a lot less shy than Lizanne was. She was a good conversationalist and was very extroverted. In her free time, she loved to listen to music, especially bands like Pearl Jam and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And both girls had creative sides. Chris was an amateur actress and Lizanne was an amateur photographer. Chris planned on going to grad school for art history after their big trip to Panama, where all this takes place. They both recently graduated, and Lizanne went to Saxon University in Deventer, and Chris went to the University of Utrecht. Just like Lizanne, Chris was an amazing student. Chris studied cultural social education, specializing in art education, and Chris also worked in psychiatry, helping people with severe addictions. Chris and Lizanne first met while they were both working part-time at a cafe in Amersfoort. The two of them became fast friends, and soon enough, they decided to rent a flat together. The girls moved in together only a few weeks before they left for Panama. And at the time of these events, Chris was 21 years old and Lizanne was 22. Lizanne had actually just graduated with a degree in applied psychology that past September, and she wanted to take a trip to celebrate. Chris's family had vacation in Central America before, so she was the one that suggested they go. At first, they wanted to go to Costa Rica, but when that didn't work out, they settled 
on Panama. So if you're not familiar with where Panama is, it's a Central American country with Costa Rica to the north and Colombia to the south. The climate is tropical and much of the country is made up of dense jungles. The continental divide forms a spine of mountains that divide the country from the center. There's a huge diversity of plant and wildlife species and some of these species can only be found in Panama. Now many of the countries in the region are known to be less developed and not super safe, but Panama is actually a pretty safe country compared to these other nations and their crime rates are decently low. It also ranks very high on the Human Development Index. Did you know I've been to Panama? You have, haven't you? Mm-hmm. What'd you think? On a cruise, I mean, right? Yeah, was I it was like so a, young. A I was in eighth grade, but yeah. No, we, we went to the Panama Canal and stuff. I do, I remember it somewhat. It was beautiful. It is a the Central people were America. really nice. Yeah, Central America is known for just the, the natural beauty and the people, the culture is a super down to earth nice mm-hmm. they're like the nicest people i went i did a missions trip to costa rica and i've been in some of these jungles and they are very dense they're very hot i yeah. built a house in the middle of the jungle yeah you did uh for for a particular family actually i think it was like a wood shop for this family their house was next to it and it's just a eye-opening experience to see how how people live down there in, mm-hmm. in the jungle um but it's and very animals, hot very bugs. humid yes crazy lots of spiders I saw some crazy spiders there. Bright, colorful, huge webs like this big. I'd be freaking. I'm so afraid of spiders. But the biodiversity there is is true, truly unique. Yeah, we'll get more into that as we go here. But anyway, Chris and Lizanne plan on staying in Panama for six weeks, but the trip wouldn't be just a vacation. It'd give them the chance to study Spanish and do volunteer work with the local community. Their travel agent had set them up with a chain of language schools in Costa Rica and Panama called Spanish at Locations. The school is owned by a Dutch expat named Ingrid Lomers. And for the first two weeks of the trip, they'd spend their time relaxing and taking Spanish lessons at Spanish by the Sea in the town of Bocas del Toro. But for the next four weeks, they'd be volunteering at a local kindergarten called Guadaria Aura. Meanwhile, they'd be taking classes at Spanish by the River. The kindergarten they'd be working at was in the town of Boquete, Panama. They'd stay with the local host family in town for the month of their stay, and they'd also be taking Spanish lessons at a school for the rest of the month. The girls saved up money for the trip for six months, and after all that work, it was finally time to head down to Panama. Chris would have known what to expect more so than Lizanne. She was pretty well-traveled, and she'd fallen in love with South America on a past family trip to Peru. Lizanne was meticulous, so of course she planned the trip well, but unlike Chris, this would be the furthest she'd ever traveled before. Her farthest trip prior was to Germany, which is just 500 miles from home. Lizanne and her parents had dinner the night before. They were going to miss their daughter, and of course they were nervous, but it would only be a few short weeks before she was home again. The night before their flight, Lizanne texted her cousin and suggested they meet up after she got back from Panama. She signed the text, quote, big hug from your little cousin. So on March 15, 2014, the two girls left their home and headed for Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport. They kissed their families goodbye and headed off on their flight. Their first stop was Houston, Texas, and from there they had a four-hour layover and then boarded a flight to San Jose, Costa Rica. The girls spent the night at a hostel before getting on a bus to go to Panama. So their trip down to Bogus del Toro was pretty hectic, but they finally settled into their accommodations on March 17th. And it was supposed to be the start of an amazing adventure. And for those first two weeks, it was. Chris and Lizanne spent some carefree days, you know, relaxing on the beach, taking Spanish lessons and hanging out with a group of Dutch boys that they met at their hostel. And Bocas was a dream. It was such a beautiful area that Chris 
said she could see herself retiring there one day. And when the girls weren't at Spanish lessons, they were usually spending their time at the beach or exploring the area on different tours. They took boat rides, spotted dolphins, drank from coconuts, ate the local food, and went out to clubs at night. It was really the perfect holiday. At one point, Chris did get sick with food poisoning or a stomach virus, something like that. But it was just a small hiccup. And in their diaries, they raved about what an amazing time they were having there overall. But eventually, it was time for the two of them to take a four and a half hour trip to Boquete. And Boquete is more of a mountain town and it attracts a lot of tourists from all around the world. Thanks to its natural beauty, the area gets a lot of ecotourism. Visitors enjoy activities like hiking, zip lining, and checking out Boquete's famous coffee plantations. So the girls took a shuttle from their hostel in Bocas and went down to Boquete. They were driven down there by a cab driver named Caesar. And it's important to note that some reports say that the girls were driven by a guide in Boquete named Plinio Montenegro. But this actually wasn't the case. And we will touch more on that later and explain. But the girls were also traveling with an intern at the Spanish school named Eileen. Eileen was a young German girl who would be taking over the management role at the school in Boquete. The school's former manager, Mario Lane, would be transferring to the Costa Rican location. And after spending two weeks in Bocas, they arrived at Boquete on March 29th, ready to start their month-long teaching stint. Their host mom and her son picked them up from the bus station at 4 p.m. that evening. The girls met with their host family and got settled into their new accommodations in Alto Boquete, which is a village south of Boquete. Their host mom was a woman named Miriam Guerra. The girls still couldn't speak Spanish very well, so there was definitely a noticeable language barrier between Miriam and the girls. But Miriam and her family were used to having foreigners stay in their house who didn't speak their language. Plus, her oldest daughter spoke English, so it wasn't really a big deal for them. But still at this point, the girls no doubt felt like they are in a bit more unfamiliar territory. And this is where Lizanne's attitude started to change as she got really homesick really fast. Bocas had been sort of a honeymoon phase for the girls, but now in Boquete, Lizanne said that she felt like she was a quote-unquote intruder in her host family's house. The family was definitely welcoming and kind, but of course it was still natural for Lizanne to feel out of place there. She wrote in her diary that she felt like a child longing for her mother. She wanted to be back home or somewhere familiar, and that made her even more upset because being so homesick felt like failure. But thankfully, the girls felt better after getting a good night's sleep, and the next morning, May 30th, the girls got up and went to their language school, Spanish by the River, for a standard welcome talk. During the talk, Chris and Lizanne told the school's manager, Mario Lane, that they wanted to go on some excursions while they were in Boquete. They wanted to hike the famous Baru volcano, tour a coffee plantation, and visit Caldera Hot Springs and see the three lost waterfalls. The waterfalls were at the top of the girls' list of things they wanted to see. Mario Lane told them that the language school worked with a guide in the area named Feliciano Gonzalez. Feliciano gave hikes including Baru Volcano and Pianista Trail Hike. Mario Lane explained that the Pianista was one of the most beautiful day hikes in Boquete. It took about five hours total to complete, and she also informed them that when they got to the viewpoint at the top, they'd take the same trail back down. Mario Lane also mentioned that some people hiked the Baru Volcano alone, but she said the girls definitely needed to take a guide up that one. After that, the girls left to explore the city. They visited the local coffee and flower fair and then the caldera. After that, they had brunch at the bistro, but Kete and Chris snapped a picture of Lizanne looking at a tourist map. The next day, Chris and Lizanne asked Eileen to book them Baru with the school's recommended guide, Feliciano Gonzalez. So she booked them the tour for that Saturday, April 5th. 
Then it was time to start their first day at the kindergarten. They were due to begin work at 1 p.m., so after the girls stopped at a supermarket, they headed over to Guarderia Aura. But when they talked to the kindergarten administrator, they discovered that there was a problem. There had been some sort of misunderstanding or miscommunication, so the girls had actually arrived in Boquete a week earlier than they were scheduled to be there. The kindergarten wasn't ready for their arrival. So for that week, there just wouldn't be any work for them. The school thought it was weird since the plans for the trip had been seemingly solidified months before their arrival, but according to what Chris wrote in her diary, the assistant instructor was really rude and unfriendly to them about the whole situation. Chris also wrote in her diary that she was really disappointed that they couldn't start work. Plus, after their experience at Aura, they weren't too keen on working there. So Eileen promised the girls she'd call a different school, Casa Esperanza, the first thing the next morning. That way, the girls could possibly start working there sooner. During the rest of the day, the girls did some research into possible activities to fill this newfound free time, and that included looking into this Pianista hike. The trail, which is called the Sendero El Pianista, got its name from the way it climbs uphill like a ladder, sort of resembling a keyboard. It climbs up the Continental Divide and officially ends at a lookout point called Mirador. On a clear day, it's a beautiful view of the mountains. And the trail takes about two and a half to three hours one way to complete. So in total, it takes about five to six hours to complete. El Pianista is an out and back trail. So once you reach the Mirador, you turn around and go back the way you came. The girls had consulted some materials when they decided to take this hike. The short flyer they looked at said, the path winds deep into the forest, but you can turn back at any time. It doesn't mention that the trail's official endpoint is the Mirador. The girls had definitely done some research, at least, into the hike before they headed out. We just don't know for sure if they knew it was an out-and-back trail. Now, some reports say that Chris and Lizanne allegedly met this guy named Feliciano the night before they disappeared at Spanish by the River. He allegedly offered them a guided tour up to the Continental Divide with an overnight stay at his cabin, but for whatever reason... They declined. And we can't confirm that this interaction actually took place, but we do know the girls had tours booked with Feliciano on the 2nd and the 5th. Later that evening, the girls decided to unwind from this stressful day with a massage. And they actually told the massage therapist that they were excited to hike the Pianista the next day. And from there, they went back to Miriam's house and turned in for the night. Miriam remembers watching TV with Lizanne that night. She said that. Lizanne was suffering from a cold and that the girls didn't have any fixed plans for the rest of the week now that their volunteer work had fallen through. Chris's boyfriend, Stefan, actually got a message from her that night around 2 a.m. And she told him that they were planning on taking a walk the next day, but she didn't say where. Chris and Lizanne woke up early the next day, which was April 1st. The last line in Chris's final diary entry from April 1st read, quote, Anyway, go with the Panamanian flow. After she wrote that final line, she shut her diary, and she and Lizanne headed out. The girls headed to Spanish by the River. Eileen called Casa Esperanza at 8 a.m., but she told the girls they didn't need any more volunteers, so the girls decided to make other plans. Eileen suggested that they go on a tour, so the girls agreed to book a guided tour of a coffee plantation. Eileen then called Feliciano and booked the girls a tour for the next day, April 2nd at 8 a.m. Then without telling Eileen where they were going, the girls decided, you know what, we're going to go hike. The pianista. They left the language school, went back to Miriam's house, changed and packed for their hike, and cabbed it to a restaurant in town. Some reports say that the girls were spotted having brunch with two Dutch men the day they disappeared, but this wasn't the case. 
The Dutch boys these reports are referring to are the two boys the girls befriended in Bocas. On the day the girls left for Boquete, the boys went back to the Netherlands. The girls were dressed in lightweight clothing. Lizanne was wearing a blue tank top and denim shorts, and Chris wore a red and white striped tank top and shorts. Both girls had hiking boots on. They brought Lizanne's backpack on the hike with them, and it looks like they only had two plastic water bottles to share between the two of them. Their server remembered the girls talking about wanting to walk the quote-unquote the mountain. At 10.16 a.m., Lizanne used the restaurant's Wi-Fi to download a map off of Google Maps for offline use. We don't know what the map was for sure, but it was most likely the Pianista trail map. After their meal, they paid the bill and took a taxi to the Pianista trailhead. And this is where the story gets a bit fuzzy. The girls took a taxi to the trailhead, but we don't know for sure who exactly took them there. A man named Leonardo Mastino claimed that he picked up Chris and Lizanne near the language school around 1.30. He said the girls asked to go to the entrance of El Pianista, so he took them to a restaurant that marks the start of that trail. He didn't talk to the girls much at all since he took two phone calls during the ride. Leonardo claims he dropped them off at about 10 minutes later, and that was that. However, this timeline wouldn't match up with the girls' phone records, so it's very possible that a different taxi driver took them to the trailhead. Regardless, Chris and Lizanne started their hike that day around 11 a.m. Their phones were only charged to about 50% when they left for their hike. So the entire next 10 days can be somewhat reconstructed from two very crucial pieces of evidence in this case, the girl's phone records and Lizanne's Canon digital camera. Now, some reports say that a local dog or the host family's husky named Azul followed them up the trail. We haven't been able to confirm that, though. Some reports say that the dog belonged to the host family. Other reports say that he belonged to the owners of a restaurant near the trailhead. The dog actually belonged to the owners of Il Pianista, the Italian restaurant located at the trailhead. He was a friendly dog who sometimes liked to follow hikers up the trail. According to the story, the girls left with Azul. An hour or a few hours later, the dog came back without the girls, which first raised the alarm. This story has been widely reported as fact, but it's never been confirmed. It's just a rumor that floated around Boquete. There's no proof at all that the girls had a dog with them, and it's actually a pretty unlikely scenario. The owners never saw the girls leave with Azul, they just thought it was possible. The dog pretty much had free reign to go over without supervision. Plus, the owner said Azul came home alone that day. They said that if the girls were in trouble, that Azul would have stayed with them. Keep in mind there is a ton of speculation and conflicting reports in this case. We're going to try our best to clarify some of these rumors and accuracies and unconfirmed pieces of info in this story. But anyway, from the girls' photos, it looked like they were having a good time while they made their way up the trail. Lizanne and Chris snapped plenty of pictures, including some selfies and nature shots. A local guide named Plinio Montenegro claimed that he spotted the girls walking on the trail around 12 p.m. He couldn't describe what the girls were wearing, but he did say they were European and he remembered their faces. The girls arrived at the Mirador around 1 p.m. Around 1.15, the girls snapped some photos at the Mirador and Lizanne's Samsung Galaxy S3 closed out of Google Maps. The app had been on in the background since 10.16 a.m. that morning. Then they apparently left the Mirador and continued past it down an unmarked path known as Serpent Trail. It's named after Rio Culebra, or Serpent River in English, for the way that it snakes and winds down the mountain. The Culebra flows into the Changuinola River that runs through the province of Bocas del Toro. The trail is not part of the official Pianista hike, and hikers are supposed to turn back at the Mirador. Chris and Lizanne's photos show that they kept going down the other side of the Continental Divide, and we don't know why the girls continued past the Mirador. 
it seems very likely that they knew it was the endpoint of the trail. And the way that the Serpent Trail is densely forested, very narrow, and sort of off to the side would signal to most people that it was not part of the Pianista. It's pretty intuitive that you would be traveling into a different region past the Mirador. Plus, the town of Alto Boquete was visible from the Mirador, so you wouldn't assume that the way back down to Boquete was this side trail, especially not after traveling down it for a few hours since it moves due north into a more and more remote area. And we don't know their exact reasoning for continuing on, but it could have just been overconfidence. They had just gotten over the disappointment of being rejected at Aura, and now they lucked out with a sunny, clear, beautiful day on the Pianista. They may have wandered off the trail to explore and look around before heading back. They may have thought that they had more time in the day to keep hiking for a little while, and they may have been under the impression that there was more to see beyond the Mirador. So nobody really knows why the girls decided to continue on after the end point of the trail. The narrow paths that Chris and Lizanne were taking were only ever really used by the indigenous Nobe people. And once you get further and further down the trail, you go deeper and deeper into dense jungle and further away from civilization. Now, some of the people from the village of Alto Romero use those trails to get to and from Boquete to get to work or to get groceries. Alto Romero is a very, very small village. I mean, we're talking tiny, less than 100 people, and it's tucked away very deep in the jungle. So many locals who traverse the trail bring machetes to clear their path. Also, the rainy season in the jungle had started on April 1st. From then on, not even the local indigenous people who used the trail would set foot on it. And that's because of the heavy rain. I mean, the path would wash out and become pretty dangerous. And from there, the water levels in the Serpent River rise. This river is also nicknamed the Grinder because in April, it turns into a fast-moving stream of water and boulders that chews up everything in its path. It's very, very steep, and it's full of cliffs and ravines, and it's almost damn near impossible to hike around there in any rainy conditions or during the rainy season at all. The jungle area is filled with cliffs, steep drop-offs, and fast-moving water, so just very, very dangerous. Okay, so we wanted to bring up some footage of this area so you can actually see it for yourself. See how dicey this terrain is. It's beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> Jinx. It is absolutely gorgeous. So lush. It's kind of a maze, though. Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, there's a trail and you follow the trail. But if you got off the trail, it'd be very, very easy to get turned around. Mm -hmm. Totally. Because it's not like it's the trail super marked. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm like gravel laid out on it it's still like it all kind of looks the same too. yeah yeah yep oh it'd be so easy to get lost man especially once the sun goes down mm -hmm. you know what i mean oh my god i can't like, even you imagine you would be so yeah. lost wow it's really lush though oh my gosh yeah it's so cool looking look at those greens I mean, I see why they wanted to do it. It's beautiful. Wow. Imagine the bug bites. Oh, my God. <laughs> I guess that's the least of your concerns yeah. when you're there. Well, I don't know. Big concern with some of those bugs. There's a lot of poisonous True. shit out there. True. A 
lot of rocks on the trail too you definitely can't like go super fast either mm-hmm. so it makes sense why it takes so long to get to the mirador so this is beyond the mirador yep. yeah wow yeah and you could see like if it starts raining that is going to become oh, a yeah. river yep Yeah, look at the Ugh. overgrown foliage. Doesn't look like it's uh, very heavily traveled, huh? Mm-mm. At 1.38 p.m., 23 minutes after the girls started down the Serpent Trail, Chris's iPhone 4 lost GSM, which is the global system for mobile communication signal. The phone might have shown one bar of service, but it lost all connection to the network at this time, and it never established connection with the network again. This is probably due to how deep in the jungle the girls were. As you can imagine, cell service would be pretty hard to get there. And this is where things take a turn. But from the photos, you can see that the girls don't necessarily realize the danger they're in yet. In one of them, Chris stands on the trail, almost saluting the camera, smiling with her tongue out. The last photo was taken at 154, and it shows Chris standing on a rock next to a stream. She's smiling, and her facial expression seems calm. But then at 4.39 p.m., over two hours after the last photo, someone calls 112 off of Chris's iPhone, which 112 is the Dutch emergency number. 12 minutes later, at 4.51 p.m., someone calls 112 again off of Lizanne's Samsung Galaxy. Chris's iPhone was powered off at 5.52 p.m. Lizanne's phone was most likely powered off at the same time since there is no activity on her phone's operating system at this point. If it really was the girls using their phones at this point, then they might have been trying to save battery in case they had better signal to call for help. Nobody really knows what happened in between the last photo and the emergency calls just under three hours later. The girls might have gotten lost after they reached the Mirador and tried their best to get back on their route. They could have forgotten the trail was an out and back hike and they might have tried to do some sort of loop or they could have just gotten lost going off of the trail. Now, there is a lot of debate over whether or not the girls could have gotten lost on the Serpent Trail. The trail directly beyond the Mirador was one that the girls couldn't have gotten lost on at least for some time. Let's take a look. So, obviously, there's ruts in the ground. You can see that mm-hmm. stuff clearly a trail, a path. Yep. So, a little bit farther, you can still see that there's clearly a path. Mm-hmm. But the embankments on either side are starting to get a little bit taller. And it's wet in some areas. I mean, obviously, it's a rainforest. gets lots of rain. So you can see it looks like there's footprints through there. But I mean, trail definitely starts to get a bit sketchier the farther you go. Yeah. A little bit harder to follow. How far is this after the Mirador? This is the first part of the um, path beyond the Mirador. Okay. Wow. You're like underground practically. That's so cool. I would get so claustrophobic. I mean, I see why you, if you're interested in exploring, why you'd want to go down this because obviously. Oh, definitely. Looks really cool. And obviously, it's at this point, it's hard to go off trail because you're forced into this narrow crevice. Right. But. And even when the walls, the the cliff walls get lower, it, you know, your intuition is not, I'm going to step a foot over this. Right. right. Ad, you're going to keep going forward. Mm-hmm. 
everything. Wow. God, it's really cool though. But yeah, there's basically you go forward or you go backwards. And like Julia said, you're not climbing over these walls or up and over them. You're just staying right between them. But then there are clearings in the trail that make it harder to follow. The trail gives way to paddocks and pastures that pass covered in cow tracks, so it can be confusing. If you get lost from there, well, it's a maze of different trails that become disorienting pretty quickly if you don't know where you're going. It's possible that after a few hours of trying to hike back, the girls realize that they were very, very lost and they tried to have emergency services come and help them, or there was just some sort of accident on the trail and they needed help. All we know is that the girls must have been pretty panicked by that point. And as the sun went down that night around 6.40 p.m., you can imagine how much harder it'd be to navigate this area. But regardless, the girls didn't turn up at their host family's house that night. Miriam, their host mom, wasn't too concerned as the girls were adults and she figured they were just out having fun at a bar or something. And it's not like they had a curfew or anything like that. The next day, April 2nd at 6.58 a.m., Lizanne's phone called 112 again. The phone had no service and the call didn't go through. It was powered off after that. At 8.12 a.m., Chris's iPhone was turned on. The battery was at 43%. A minute later, the phone was manually switched from 2G mode to 2G and 3G mode. This might have been Chris trying to get a better signal. She also made it so the control panel can be accessed without the pin. A minute later, Chris's phone dialed 112 and took a screenshot. The phone showed one bar, but the call didn't go through because it couldn't establish a connection with a cell tower. Then the phone was turned off again. At 10.52, Lizanne's phone was turned on and called both 911 and 112. The phone had no signal and the calls didn't go through. The phone was then turned off until 1.50. The girls might have turned the phone on to check their signal because right after it was turned on, it was turned off again before making any calls. Lizanne's phone was turned on again at 4.19 and then left on overnight. I just wanted to ask you guys what you think about um, the number of emergency calls to 911 slash 112 that were made from that time um, that the first call came in to you know now it being like 24 hours, 36 hours later, and there's only like a handful of those emergency calls. My first immediate thought is clearly there's desperation here. The fact that they're continuing to to call these numbers, they're clearly in need of help. And they also know that their phone batteries are draining. So they're trying to be smart about it when it comes to quickly turning it on, making yeah. those phone calls, seeing if that makes sense. They're clearly just trying to see if their phone's getting service without draining the battery completely. I mean, that seems like what's going on here. And they're just trying the two emergency numbers over and over again to see if the call will go through. Well, the thing is, it's not actually like over and over again like that they made like two calls that first day and then like shut off their phones and that was that no i know but i'm saying like they're they're being smart about how they're going about it versus just like keeping their phone on and dialing it over and over and over again they're dialing it and they're seeing that okay it's not going through so i'm not going to waste any more battery life and continue trying it and we'll try to hike to a different location and, and try it again later on that's the way that i take it is like they're they're still logically thinking through their situation right now and they're trying not to drain their battery life because every time they turn on their phone obviously the battery's going down so they're not wanting to keep it on for extensive periods of time do you have a different take on it i mean i just think that um i would probably try the emergency number like more than once like if it doesn't go through the first time if i'm like panicking shit like yeah you know i would understand like a in my head probably like a you know, calling a friend or someone that doesn't go through. I'm like, okay, well, shit, I'm going to call the emergency number. 
and then that doesn't go through i'm like oh well like i need to i'm calling the police i need to get assistance like i'm gonna try again i'm gonna i'm gonna probably try like three four more times because i mean you think about it like a drop call is not gonna take that long so why do you think they called so little times then i don't why do i yeah yeah, I was going to say, I don't Do think a- there's anything to that, to be honest with you. Like, I think they just, they realized like, hey, the service is bad. They saw, like, they saw on their phone, there's one bar. So they knew that the chances of it. They just felt it, like it was useless. Right. They were just like, it's useless and, and their batteries are draining. So they're, rather than waste any seconds of more battery drain, they're like, let's just try it real quick here at this location. If it doesn't go through, then we'll keep on hiking to a different spot to try to get service which is clear by the fact that they're turning off the phones they're, right they're worried right. about the battery because like why would you if it doesn't go through and you have one bar why i mean in this situation if you're trying to you know you're lost you know you're gonna ha- you could potentially be out there for a long period of time without being rescued just dialing the number over and over and over again doesn't necessarily make sense like from a survival's point survivalist point of view you would you'd want to conserve that battery life and then move to a different spot, right? Where you could potentially get a bit more bars mm-hmm. um, to make that call go through. Yeah. That's, that's the way that I see it. I least. mean, that makes sense to me. I also see what you're saying, Julia, that in that type of panic, I would probably be the type to call as many times as I could and keep trying it. Hope like one of them is just going to work. You're going to get that service and get through. And I'm not saying like they sit there for like an hour and they're just... Sure. Of course, over but over more again. than once. At least like more than once to like if it doesn't go through the first time, I'm like, oh, it failed. Maybe there's something with the phone. Like, I, I'm going to try at least like one or two more times. Yeah. And I do think that, see you that. know, they're not coming at it from a perspective where it's like, we're going to be out here for a while. I think that nobody kind of thinks that until, you know, they could have realized they had a, yeah, an emergency yeah. and then it sets in like, oh shit, this is getting actually really bad. Mm-hmm. And I think that they wouldn't have like immediately gone to survival because like in your head, you're like, this isn't, gonna like happen yeah you know i'm not gonna be out here no that makes sense to me too but i think that only works under the assumption that they were panicking and desperate at this point i do think based on um i believe lazanne it was lazanne who was into mountaineering and uh her background that perhaps she was kind of taking control of the situation and was keeping them calm and and telling them like hey we just need to keep looking to get more service so that we can make that call. And so we need to conserve battery life here. Let's just make one call. If it doesn't go through, we'll move on to the next stop. I think we are assuming that they're in full panic mode at this point and that they're just desperate. And that may not be the case. They could be completely level-headed still. Maybe they're slightly freaking out, but they're able to work through the situation and continue trying at different spots when they're making these phone calls. Well, that's what's so hard about this is no one knows what state they were in. No one knows what they were thinking. No one knows what could have been happening if they had any injuries at this point or any any other reasons why they may have been calling. Is there more of a reason to panic? I mean, there's just endless possibilities because no one would have known but them. I also do think like it's entirely possible that they were like very level-headed, but to me, it would still almost like be very logical to to try at least like two or three times because you're not calling emergency services again unless it's like something's wrong and i need someone to come help me yeah 
No, I see what you're saying. So like I can kind of see like both where it's like, yeah, they might have been like, oh, I need to turn off my phones, conserve battery. But I, I just feel like it. They would have tried to call more than that and maybe, you know, try to call someone else, try to call their host mom. Yeah. No, that's a good point, too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think know. I think the screenshot is also evident of they were notating what their service was. I, I think the emphasis is around the fact that they didn't have service and therefore they knew that, you know, at the, they're recording and they're, they're spacing out these calls in a, in a methodical way because in between the timestamps, there's a likely likelihood that they're moving around, continuing to try different locations at different times versus just like sitting there dial it once all right now we're going to sit here in the exact same spot for three hours before we turn our phone back on to me the the on and off again phones signal that they were likely continuing to move continuing to hike around they weren't just like let's just sit here and hope somebody finds us and we'll just try to call once in a while to me try different places right if they were going to go that route then likely they would have stayed there and just kept dialing over and over and over again. I think they were smart and they knew, hey, we don't have service here. Let's take a screenshot of the time and location uh, or you know, time at which we're here and what the signal uh, strength was before moving on to somewhere else. I think it's very evident that they're continuing to move to try to get service mm-hmm. to make that phone call. Well, I agree. I just think that you can do two things at once. You can you know, walk 10 minutes, you know, call like this is like hours of time that the phone is off especially when it hits night like but, i'm like it's night in the jungle and there's nobody here and we're alone and we have no food and we have no water or very little food very little water like that's scary as fuck like i'm i'm gonna turn my phone on at night and call one more time I'm yeah i mean they're moving even if i was in the same place no like, that's a good point and i think this the screenshot i'm not really sure if that would be intentional because a lot of times um, sure these screenshots coincide with like right before the phone turns off. So it's possible you're that, accidentally pressing oh, it. Yeah. yeah I yeah, do that no, shit all the time. Point. But yeah. I do think it's possible too that they were keeping track of something. I'm just not sure why it would, you know, be just a screenshot, maybe not like a note. I mean, I don't know. I give them more credit though, because I do think the mountaineering background came into to play here. I think that they one of them had prior knowledge, prior experience hiking, probably read some things on how to be, you know, obviously they didn't go as prepared as they should have been for for a hiking trip like this. But again, they didn't expect this to turn into what it was. It was supposed to be a day trip and come home. And so they didn't go prepared to stay overnight or for ex- an extensive period of time. But I do think that they're, the girls were smarter than than what we even know and they were aware or at least one of them was aware of okay we're in this situation we need to conserve battery life we need to make our our the time on our phones while they're on as quick as possible to to try to extend the life of the battery i think that's very evident here and i get like you could make three calls in a matter of a minute or whatever and like it wouldn't affect anything so why just the one obviously that's a big question i just don't think there's any other evidence that supports you know this idea of like it's it's weird that they just called one you know called once like what would be your theory as to why they just called once if it isn't because they're just trying to conserve battery life you know what i mean like 
I don't I don't necessarily have a theory. I mean, I have my own theory as to what happened as a whole as to why they didn't call more times. I think it is weird, but I just I don't, you know, be like it's weird so it must mean this. I know some people do. There are some people that take this as evidence to point to other theories namely sure. like foul play, which you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to, but again, like lost people don't always a lot of times don't do things that like we understand very much. So like mm -hmm. I get that, but I still do feel like it's weird. Sure. So I don't know. Some people might take that fact and kind of say that it lends credence to like a different theory. I just kind of wanted to point it out because I, I do think it's strange, but I'm not saying that it means like this means that something. Sure. Happened, okay. Okay. Right? Thanks for clarifying that. I think it really comes down to everybody's their own personal perspective and their own personal experience in this type of situation because everybody would react differently in this situation depending on who you are and what your experience is especially being in the outdoors and hiking that you might approach it differently and you might you know you might dial over and over again and just walk around to your your phone drains trying to desperately make that call cuz you're freaking freaking the fuck out and you're like I need to get help or if you have somebody with experience in mountaineering and hiking you would understand they're conserving more I don't have I don't have a signal here. I don't have service. The call did not go through. It's very obvious on your phone when the call doesn't go through. It literally tells you right on the screen. Call failed and and you look at your you're like, "Okay, I have no bars here." The other fact that's interesting to me is the switch from 2G to 2G and 3G. That to me tells me that whoever was operating the phone understood there is a lack of service here. And I'm going to try to attempt to connect through 3G in addition to 2G because when you go to these countries, oftentimes it is only a 2G tower that your phone can connect to. You have to actually, you know, kind of downgrade your phone signal. So she's then making the attempt to expand the range and try to connect via 3G. And so to me, that tells me that the person operating the phone or is leading sort of this expedition is understanding that it's a service issue. And we need to find service and also conserve battery life. Does that make sense? That's how I'm sort of. Yeah, I, I mean, I see both of your point of view. And I think either one could be what actually happened. It's just, sure, you know, no one actually knows. The holidays are coming up fast. Before your life goes into overdrive with the holidays, protect your home with Simply Safe Home Security. You can get a brand new system today for 40% off. We are huge fans of Simply Safe because they are the best home security system I've ever used. I love that they don't require a contract. I've been with so many companies that give you this long contract and you if you want to leave ever, you got to buy your way out of it. But what truly makes Simply Safe unique is that if an alarm goes off at your home, the agents can actually verify what's going on before contacting you to make sure it's not a false alarm it's not your cat triggering the alarm and they can even talk to the intruder if they need to which will probably deter that intruder from furthering into your home and robbing you of all your stuff and i love that simply safe allows you to customize your system no matter what size of home you have even if you live in a small a one bedroom apartment you can take advantage of Simply Safe. Experts love Simply Safe. It was named the best home security system of 2023 by US News and World Report. Simply Safe is comprehensive protection for your whole home with advanced sensors that detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. Plus, they have HD cameras for inside the home and outside the home, which are really, really nice, high, high quality. It's powered by 24 7 professional monitoring for less 
than a dollar a day. It's really amazing deal. It's half the cost or more of traditional home security. With the new 24-7 LiveGuard protection and the smart alarm wireless indoor camera, monitoring agents can, like I said, see and speak to intruders, helping to stop that crime in real time. It's a powerful technology exclusively from Simply Safe. Satisfaction is backed by Simply Safe's money-back guarantee. Try Simply Safe for 60 days risk-free. If you don't love it, return your system for a full refund. Seriously, the best deal out there for home security. Give them a try if you haven't. And for a limited time, you can save 40% off on any new system with a fast protect plan. Just visit simplysafe.com slash milehire. That's simplysafe.com slash milehire because there's no safe like Simply Safe. So like we said, Lizanne's phone was turned on again at 419 and left on overnight. Now, meanwhile, the girls missed their appointment with their guide, Feliciano, and they were supposed to meet at the language school at 8 a.m. that morning. And after waiting 10 minutes, he and Eileen got pretty nervous and they decided to check at Miriam's house to see if the girls were there. And Miriam wasn't home, so Eileen and Feliciano called them up. And when she found out the girls missed their appointment, she told Feliciano and Eileen where the keys were and let them go inside. Now, she was very nervous, too, since the girls hadn't come home the night before. And the girls weren't at the house. In fact, there were still leftovers sitting out from breakfast the day before. That gave both Feliciano and Eileen a very uneasy feeling. But there was nothing anyone could do about it at the time. Due to local laws, there hadn't been enough time that had passed since the girls were last seen to report them missing, which is always so frustrating to hear. Then Feliciano and Eileen went on to the farm that the girls booked a tour at since the owner was expecting them anyway. They wanted to see if maybe the girls misunderstood their arrangement and went to the farm instead of meeting at the school, and they hadn't. On the way, he and Eileen stopped by a park ranger station to see if anyone had seen the girls, and the ranger on duty said that she hadn't. Then at 4.13 p.m., a magnitude 6 earthquake struck the area. By 7.30, Feliciano was very, very worried. There still had been no sign of the girls in Boquette Day. So at that point, Feliciano and Eileen went to the police around 7.30 p.m. to raise the first alarm that the girls were missing. But in Panama, an adult could only be reported missing after 48 hours. So there was nothing that they could do. They were told to grab the girls' identification papers so they could make a report. At 9.30 p.m., Feliciano and Eileen went back to the police station and officially had the girls declared as missing persons. And the police instructed Feliciano to contact Cena Proc the next morning to organize searches for the girls. And Cena Proc is Panama's national system for civil protection. It's an organization that was created to help citizens in case of disasters and they also assist in missing persons cases. Late that night, Eileen called a number she thought was Lizanne's. It was actually Lizanne's mother's number. Eileen asked if she was speaking to Lizanne, and then she said they're looking for Lizanne. Lizanne's mother told the caller who she didn't know that Lizanne was in Panama. Then she hung up. It was the middle of the night in the Netherlands, which was seven hours ahead of Boquete. Eileen felt uneasy and decided to call back. At this point, she told Diney that her daughter and her friend Chris didn't return home the night before. The Froons were calm at first, and they figured that Lizanne would turn up soon. She hadn't been missing for very long, but they did call up the Kremers to notify them. When the Kremers called their travel agent in the Netherlands to see what was going on, she told Ruli that the girls hadn't been seen in over 24 hours. Ruli became inconsolable, screaming, quote, that cannot be true. The two families went to file a missing persons report at 5 a.m. Netherlands time, 
and that report was passed on to Interpol. During the early morning hours of April 3rd, Lazan's phone was used to check the AccuWeather app at 2.21 a.m. Its battery had drained to 6% by that point. Reportedly at 2.47 a.m., it used some apps, but it's unknown which ones were used. By 7.17 a.m., Lazan's phone hit 1% and was powered off 19 minutes later. Chris's phone was powered on about two hours later and made two 911 calls that didn't go through. Chris's phone powered on for a signal check a few hours later again. There was no signal. That morning, Feliciano got in touch with Sinaproc and he said the girls hadn't come back on the first and that they had possibly gone for a walk. They were going to start searching for the girls in the area. The problem was Sinaproc didn't know exactly where to look for them. The girls hadn't really told anyone where they were going hiking or that they were going to the Pianista that day. So the search would be a lot more broad than just that particular trail. Seems around 8 a.m. that Sinaproc got some of their helicopters to do a quick aerial search of the area, but they found nothing. Feliciano and the 10 or so men at the Sinaproc office decided to start searching the Pianista. They didn't get very far before someone from the office called them and told them to turn back. They apparently needed the go-ahead from a Sinaproc commander at their office in Chiriki, province capital of David. At first, the Sinaproc men wanted to search the trail anyway. They thought the order was a waste of time. In the end, they decided to follow the order and turn back. But Feliciano decided to keep going and search the trail himself. Feliciano even spent two hours hiking past the Mirador down the Serpent Trail. On the way, he apparently talked to people who lived in fincas or country homes along the trail. Some of them said they saw the two girls go up the trail, but they didn't see them come back down. Feliciano came back from Pianista empty-handed, and he hadn't found any sign of the girls. Word started to spread around Boquete that the two hollandesas or dutch girls were missing but this hadn't become big news yet it's not uncommon for tourists to get lost on hikes and Sinaproc usually finds them pretty quickly at 3 59 p.m chris's iphone turned back on and looked on the whatsapp for the contact miriam and remember miriam was the girl's host mom a screenshot was taken of miriam's contact page and then the phone was turned off again after this point there were no more attempts to call 112 or 911 the next day, April 4th, Lazanne's phone was powered on twice, but by the second attempt, the phone's battery died completely. Chris's phone was used for two more signal checks that day. Meanwhile, on the 4th, groups of volunteers started ground searches for the girls, and that same day, Lazanne's brother, her uncle, and one of their friends made it to Boquete from the Netherlands, and they were planning on helping the search team find the girls. While a helicopter flies over the jungle north of Boquete, volunteers start searching the ground. They scoured nearby areas of the Quetzal Trail, the Pipeline, and the three lost waterfalls, and they didn't find anything. The next day, April 5th, Chris's iPhone was powered on at 10.50 a.m. This would be the last time that her phone's pin was entered correctly. So this might indicate that it was Chris using her phone and checking for a signal, but after this point, the pin was never entered in correctly again. So we don't know if there were incorrect passcode attempts or if someone tried using a pin at all. We just know that whoever was using the phone didn't get into it. I want to clarify super quick, too, that um, I've seen this float around a lot, that there were 77 incorrect pin attempts at this point, And that's not the case. So we just don't know if like whoever opened the phone tried to get in or didn't. So that 77 bit is not true. Just made up. So has that been, is that just going around the internet it's in going the rumors or has it been incorrectly reported? Um, I've seen it like around the internet a lot as kind of a rumor. I think I know where it originates from. And um, that person basically went back and said, oh, it was like she heard from someone that 
read the forensic report and um, she had kind of gotten it wrong. I think there were a total of 77 incorrect pin code attempts from before April 1st from like a wide span of time. Which, oh, okay. So like, you know, I enter my pin code wrong all the time. Of so, course, so do I, yeah. Yeah, but there, there was no like, you know, uh, on April 5th. Yeah. There were 77 pin code attempts. That's I've seen it reported that like that day or from that day on, there were 77 incorrect ones. And we just don't mm. know um, if whoever tried getting into the phone, like actually tried to get in or just opened it, you know? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, and it would be super sketchy if there were 77. So I see why mm -hmm. people have kind of run with that. But it's important to stick to the facts here. So some people have speculated by this point, Chris may have been dead or unconscious. Lizanne may not have known her passcode. And since her phone was dead, maybe she had tried to get into Chris's phone, which is that's tough, too, because I feel that in this situation, they would have shared that's what their saying. pin codes with each other. I mean, yeah, but who knows? Other people have brought that up, too. Like, it's it's kind of weird, but I yeah. Mean, I don't or know. she did and she just forgot. Yeah. That's all I mean, that's you're in true. a stressful that's situation. True. Your retaining yeah. of information or is she gonna... wrote it down in her phone and her phone was dead so she had no access to it. I mean there's so many yeah. possibilities of what could have happened but during the day a 40 person volunteer search team continued to do ground searches for the girls Cineproc started another aerial search for them with two helicopters but due to bad weather the search had to be called off pretty quickly. At 1.14 p.m., Lizanne Samsung created a log file, which only could have been created if the phone was on, but the phone itself didn't actually turn on. So very strange. It looks like this file might have been created while the phone was trying to power on, but it didn't have enough power to boot up fully. So the file was left behind during the power on attempt. Chris's iPhone was turned on again about 20 minutes later and then powered off. But this time the phone wasn't opened and nobody tried to use the phone's pin. The next day, April 6th, the iPhone was powered on for two signal checks. During the first signal check, a screenshot of the clock app was taken. It showed the times for Amsterdam, San Jose, and Panama City. Then the phone was powered off. There was no other activity on either phone until April 10th. Since the girls hadn't turned up by this point, Chris's parents got on a plane and headed for Panama, Meanwhile, that day, Cineproc started their first official ground search for the girls. This detail has been one of the most controversial aspects of this case because the girls had been missing for almost a week at this point, and Cineproc was just now starting ground searches for them, which is just mind-blowing. That's so insane. What it the fuck? Seems like that would be day one. Yes. Go do a ground search for them. There was no activity on the girls' phones on April 7th. Cineproc continued to search the jungle for the girls. They were also joined by Sanafront, which is Panama's border protection agency. Searchers from one of those teams spent the night in one of the search areas. That's also when Sanafront's special forces started using call and light signals to try and locate the girls. And that's where this case takes an even eerier turn. In the early morning hours of that night, just after April 7th became April 8th, Lizanne's Canon PowerShot camera was used to take almost 100 photos. And we'll admit, these photos are definitely pretty creepy, depending on how you look at them. Throughout the rest of the episode, we're going to refer to these as the night photos, since they were taken exclusively at night. Most of the photos were taken pretty quickly, like one after another. There was an average of about 10 seconds in between each photo. 
Most of the photos are of the surrounding area and they don't really show that much. And from the looks of the photos, it was raining in the jungle that night. That's backed up by weather reports that say there was a big storm in the area on the night of the 8th. But some people think the girls could have been near a waterfall or maybe just the speck scene are just dust particles. Again, most of the photos look sort of the same, but there are a few chilling photos that stand out from the others. One is a picture of what looks like Chris's hair. And there's been a lot of speculation online about this photo, what it shows, or why it was taken in the first place. So if we pull those photos up, so you can take a look if you're watching. They're so creepy. This is definitely the creepiest photos to me. And if you're listening, it's just a close-up shot of a bunch of hair. But some people think they can make out a patch of bloodstained hair in what appears to be Chris's right temple area, which... From looking at it, I really struggle to see blood. I have probably spent like a grand total of like, you know, a few hours just on this photo in particular, trying to see if I can make out any, you know, anything discernible besides the hair. And it's like every time I think I can see something like it's just like, uh, the blood is hard because blood is so like bright red or a dark red mm-hmm. i just am not seeing that in the area where all. people are saying it could be there and i think the blood stain rumor um i think that it was just a rumor when the pictures were not leaked because all of these pictures mm. are leaks they weren't like released by panamanian or dutch authorities exactly so i think it was just kind of a rumor that once the pictures came out it was like kind of disproven but then people are still trying to see if they can People want to see what they want to see, too, usually. Right. And also, again, these pictures were taken at night. So whoever leaked these definitely edited them and changed the contrast and perhaps messed with brightness and other aspects of the photos themselves. So we don't know what the original for this looked like, but it looks like it's been unless this was the original untouched. We don't really know what's been touched, what hasn't been touched. Mm -hmm. I mean, the. The second photo looks more edited to me. Well, this are you talking about the um hair? Right. The second, like the diary. It's the same photo. It's just got text on yeah, it. Yeah, that's someone else did that. No, I know. It just oh. it looks different from the original photo. The one that someone has added all this text to. Oh. Doesn't it look different when you compare the two? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think. It looks a little bit like brighter, like yeah. the hair is more shiny. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. exposure. Yeah. And it does right. look more red towards the bottom. If this was the original photo, I would think I'd be more willing to believe there was blood. But I really don't see that. No. I see like darker bits of her hair. So in the lower part of the photo, some people think they can see Chris's nostril and mouth and her hair is covering her face. I kind of see where they're coming from with the nostril, but the me mouth too. thing completely completely throws me off yeah i don't don't know how you're seeing no i don't see a mouth at all this looks like the back of someone's head to me Mm -hmm. see i keep thinking it's the front but i mean who really knows i keep thinking it's the front almost taken from underneath you know what i mean like all everything covering but i don't know i don't know it's a lot of hair it's so weird people have speculated that it's um Chris's head is in Lizanne's lap and she's sort of like looking down. Mm. It doesn't seem like a necessarily like an intentional photo. Yeah. Because that's it what doesn't I think too. show much, but 
mm. besides, you know, hair. So one thing to note is that at this point in time, we don't know if Chris is alive or dead. It was most likely Lizanne taking these photos. So make of that of what you will. There's also a photo that appears to show part of someone's chin or maybe an elbow or something and a few strands of hair, but we're not really sure though. Let's take a look at that photo for a second. That's a very weird, I, I don't know. I, I kind of tend to think this is doctored in some way. Really? Yeah, why? or cropped or something. It's just a weird, why is it? It seems accidental to me. That'd be my best guess. Yeah, if it is taken like this, it's definitely. Looks like the side of her face or a chin. and You can see a little hair. Maybe she's messing around with it, seeing how bright the flash could get, which we'll talk more about that. Exactly. This episode is also brought to you by Higher Love Wellness. If you're not familiar with Higher Love Wellness, it is Kendall and I's company. We specialize in CBD products right now. And currently we're running sales on a number of different products, including uh, some of our tinctures, which are great to put in drinks or just directly on the tongue. We also have CBD topicals on sale as well as all of our concentrates. So if you're into CBD vapes or concentrates, we are running huge sales on those right now, including some of our Higher Love merchandise. You can purchase that at higherlovewellness.com. We ship to all 50 states and it is 100% legal. It's broad spectrum CBD, so it doesn't have THC in it. You don't have to worry about any of that. And it is some of the highest quality stuff. All of the hemp is grown right here in Colorado. It's extracted here and it becomes our wonderful products that we have available. If you're not familiar with CBD, it's a great daily supplement. It can help you in a lot of different ways, whether you're struggling with inflammation, pain, sleep, or just overall just calm. CBD can really help as a daily supplement. So check out higherlovewellness.com today. So there's a couple of reasons for why she might have been taking these photos. Some people think that Lizanne was using the camera to illuminate the path in front of her, but this doesn't seem super likely when you consider where the photos were taken. All the photos appear to be taken from the same spot. She might have been marking the spot as some sort of important location she needed to recognize and remember. It's also been speculated that tragically, this spot might have been where Chris died. So Lizanne might have been trying to remember that spot to come back to her body if she was rescued. But what seems most likely is that Lizanne was using the flash as some sort of signaling attempt. She might have heard or saw something off in the distance that made her think there were people nearby. Which, to me, that makes the most sense. I agree. Especially since they were out there. Um, the, the you know special forces were out there trying to mm -hmm. use signaling and calling. And there is a good chance that they could have heard or seen something and this was their attempt at trying to get their attention possibly. And a lot of people have argued there's no way they were doing that because it doesn't make much sense. It wouldn't have been bright enough. No one would have seen it. But when you're desperate, I mean, you're going to try everything that you possibly can. If you have a tool like that, why not try and... Yeah, I think it's, a, it's, it's a definitely a good attempt. I mean, especially since in these photos, you can clearly see they're taking pictures of the sky and there's not trees covering them. So they have an open yeah. angle to the night sky. So that's the only in the explanation pitch dark to me. jungle. Yeah. A flash from a camera is definitely going to be bright. And right, if right. somebody is overhead, potentially. Yeah. And I mean, it could have worked. Or somewhere off in the distance. And maybe they see this flash from far away. I think you would probably see it potentially. Some people have speculated that they were trying to signal rescue helicopters, but. You know, flying helicopters at night is very dangerous. It's much more dangerous to fly a helicopter at night during a storm 
you know, throughout the mountain jungles. But that doesn't mean they knew that. They no. could have thought there there's a chance that they're up there. And-, and I don't think it's impossible that they could have been flying helicopters. Look at the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. The Coast Guard goes out and rescues people in no, storms all the time in the middle of the ocean. And people get rescued off mountaintops. I think it's very possible that maybe there was somebody flying a helicopter, hence why they were looking at the sky, angling it that way, hoping that something flying around maybe could it have. is just unlikely though. It's just could have. I could have. They might a have, lot have could have here. Just heard like the uh the light and the um sound signals that Cinefront in the Center Park were using. Mm-hmm. And I think that obviously they can see that they're not like right in front of them or behind them. Yeah. So it's the sky is like it's up or nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like it's all dense rainforest around you. So again, keep in mind that those photos were leaked and have never officially been released. And most of them have had their exif data removed from them. So the metadata are missing from uh, some of the photos. Plus, whoever leaked them manipulated some of the images by increasing contrast and brightness to increase clarity because all the original photos likely would have been very, very dark if not completely black. Also, not all of the photos were leaked, but multiple sources have seen the few unleaked photos and have said there's nothing special, nothing in them that could help solve the case, which is important to know. So as much as people dwell on the photos, and I think there's a few more photos that we'll get into here in a second. So that first image was taken at 1.29 a.m. And from there, a photo is taken about every 10 seconds or so. And the photos start to slow down a little bit around 1.48 a.m. Um, with photos being taken every 30 seconds or so. And then around 2 a.m., there's around 5 to 10 or so minutes in between photos. And the second to last photo is taken at 3.22 a.m. And the last photo is taken a little over 45 minutes later at 4.10 a.m. There are also other photos that have stood out to investigators. One of them looks like some sort of rock face. When the photo is enhanced, it seems to show the camera pointing up to the face of a cliff rather than down. And keep in mind, these enhancements are done by sleuths online, not investigators themselves. But some people believe that the enhanced photo is possibly showing another person on top of the cliff It does seem more likely, though, that this figure is just a fern branch, but we'll let you take a look at it for yourself and decide. What do you guys think about this? I don't. I think it's a branch. Yeah. I don't see it. I I think it's a major stretch. I think if you look at everything around the part that people are circling and indicating as somebody. It looks similar. It looks exactly the same. Yeah, I, I really don't see anything there. I think people just want to make sense of this so much that they're seeing things that aren't actually there. But another photo shows something weird. It's a twig or a branch sitting on top of a rock with two red plastic bags or wrappers on it. This one's really weird. There's been a lot of speculation as to what this twig thing is. I don't know what to make of that. It Trash. It's odd to me, though. Like, Why would that be so far into the jungle uh you'd be surprised people if people traverse a trail i mean you go hiking anywhere and there's trash on the trail like yeah people do litter and like little baggies like this could be but why take a picture of that i wonder it almost looks like pieces of a balloon to me 
Uh, you can kind of tell it's more translucent than that if you look at really? the bottom part. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then yeah, there's no, another piece of trash next to it on the ground, the little white thing, too. Mm -hmm. And yeah, then behind the right. it. Yeah. yeah. It's just such, it's so odd. Was there a reason for it? Or is she just testing things? Or maybe she's trying to see what it is herself. That could be it. You know, like, what are these, are they useful things for me? Or what are these pieces of trash? I, I think it could be in their minds or in her mind, she could be thinking this will mark the location of where we are to remember it for yeah. later because no, that's a good point. So if you're out in the middle of the jungle and you're looking for identifying markers, what's going to stick out to you if you go back to this area? Not, not the trees, not the grass, yeah. not, not like a particular natural formation, but lo and behold, you have looks like a fairly large branch with this bright orange red plastic on it. I think you would remember that probably and see that more so than anything else. But it's kind of a strange placement to have broken it up or put it in two different places. I wonder if it's like a like a grocery bag or something that they had that was carrying something and they used it. Oh, I don't you think know. they made this? Kind of. I don't think they made this. I think they just found this and then pulled maybe pulled it out from wherever they found it and stuck to it wherever it as they a were. Oh, okay. To yeah. be like, Maybe. My thing is, is if you're going to use it as a marker, you know, with how much weather and and cr crazy things that can happen in the forest, wouldn't you want to anchor it somehow? Like stick put it in the rock, ground? or put, Yeah, stick yeah. it in the ground, put a rock, a heavy rock over it or something that you can try and ensure that it doesn't just get blown away or washed away because then your marker is useless at that point. Yeah, it doesn't seem. I mean, in a perfect world, effective. Janelle, sure. But I think if you look at this a little closer it's a pretty large like the picture doesn't really do it justice because they're kind of far away from it i think this is a fairly large you know has enough weight to it that i don't think it's just gonna like blow away it's not well, like it's a hard to twig. tell it could be small no and you can i mean you can tell shot. by look at the the background there and mm. if you look at the way that oh yeah it's I see lying next to this more. smaller trash here this is and then if you zoom in and you look at the actual branch itself, it looks pretty thick com in comparison to the rest of the ground. Mm -hmm. I think it's sizable enough that that wouldn't really be an issue. And you got to remember, these girls are exhausted if, if both of them are still alive at this point. So if one of them is deceased at this point, I don't think they're going to go through all this extra trouble to try to like, they're going to be exhausted from hiking around, exhausted from lack of food and water. So they're just grabbing whatever is nearby. I don't know. I'm still leaning towards the idea that they wanted to see what it was. So they took a picture of it for okay, the flash. Okay. That's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I mean, who, some people think really that knows? this was like to collect rainwater which yeah, or repel mosquitoes, which uh, I don't know. What what about this repels mosquitoes unless there's some t sort of chemical or some sort of like oil? I don't know. Oil it's in interesting there. though because people online have commented saying that some locals use things like this to repel mosquitoes. Maybe it's just not something we're familiar with. The rainwater thing, I don't know. Oh, I don't that, see that I, at all. I'm like, how is that collecting any decent amount of rainwater that would be useful? Yeah, it doesn't look like it's, there's maybe other branches that could hold the bag more open and they're not being yeah. used. Especially the one on the bottom part, like, eh, that just does not hold up. Yeah. Yeah, the bottom one isn't, isn't doing much. If it's trying to collect rainwater. Yeah. No, it's on the ground practically. Yeah, you'd be better off almost grabbing like a big leaf and no. putting it. I don't know. That's just, that can't be it. 
Some people think that the girl's just made out of boredom or maybe it was trash that had already been there before, which uh, that's kind of what I'm leaning towards, that it was just trash and they were trying to see what it was, use the light, see if it was something that they could have used or I don't know. I don't know. This case is so confusing. But in another photo, it looks like there might be some sort of SOS signal in the corner of the camera shot. It looks like the girls had some toilet paper or a ripped up map or something spread out on a rock, possibly with a mirror as a reflective device. What do you think of these photos, Josh? I can kind of see how you would think that. It certainly looks like there's a circular reflective material on the ground, perhaps a mirror, perhaps foil. Some Mm. people think it's the bottom of a Pringles can. Sure. Or a can cut off or something. Yeah, I see that. Oh, yeah, I see that. Hmm. And that if you really look at the way this paper, or whatever is, it almost kind of does like like there's an S, an O, and then yep. you know the last thing is obscured by the either the camera pack or the backpack strap. Hmm. So and then other people have like taken like really zoomed in on uh, bits of the paper and tried to match it up. It's like a possible match with. Mm, I see that. Yeah, a map that I don't know if it was Chris or Lizanne, um was holding earlier that week. Yep, at a cafe. Yep, uh, Kendall, oh, I, I think that. you're you're spot on though with why these why they took these pictures. I think they took these pictures, and they seem so weird to me is because they weren't trying to take pictures; they were just trying to get light. Yeah, it's the middle of the night. Their phones are drained. They don't yeah. have flashlights. It's pitch dark. So the only light they have available to them is the flash off the camera. Although you do have the like a flashlight app on your phone. Yeah, but their phones are dead. Their phones are dead at this point. And flashlights drain your phones like crazy. So that would be stupid to use any remaining battery on the flashlight. Just figuring the camera lights. Chris's phone was sorry, not a hundred percent dead yet at this point. Right, it's not on. Yeah, know that. But and they know that if they do use that, it's going to fry the rest of it pretty quickly. And they had iPhone fours, and I don't know. I don't. I had one of those way, way back when, 10 years ago. But like, I don't remember if the app, because, you know, it's built into our phones now. Like, right. you just go on They've the had, and click Oh, it. yeah. It wasn't no, it like that anymore. Huh? did not have a flashlight. But there's been apps for flashlights sure. forever. Yeah, like yeah. Can, to use the flash yeah. as the... But you need internet yeah. to download one of those. They may not even have Right. It. No, it's true. And I, That's an interesting point. I didn't even remember back when yeah. you didn't just have it in the swipe down as a feature. <clears throat> wow. Interesting. This photo for me backs up a lot. I was saying earlier about uh, Lizanne knowing a lot more about mountaineering and how to survive in the wild because, or, you know, if you get lost and, you know, you need to get help from the very fact that they're clearly trying to create ways to be seen through the, Mm -hmm. what looks like an SOS. I mean, you can clearly see the curve. It does definitely looks like an SOS. They got the reflective can or mirror, perhaps. They're trying to signal. I do really think it's part of that map, too. Looking closely at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It looks like it. Maybe even the top left corner. They're doing everything they possibly can with what they have to try to try to be rescued. I think that's what's so heartbreaking at like the timing of the pictures, too. Like, mm-hmm. camera comes on, and it's like, boom, 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 boom. Like, one after, and they're like, basically as fast as she can take them. And mm-hmm. then they start... gradually slowing down and it's like she clearly i think she heard something saw something a light signal or the sound signals they were using and was like oh my god yeah went out to try to signal them and 
I mean, clearly they didn't find them. So it's like, yeah, I mean, hours the camera was on and she's slower and slower, but she's still taking pictures at certain interval intervals. And as like the time in between the pictures gets shorter, it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, damn, they, I can't imagine what that would have been like. to Like they're starting to lose hope kind of. Like imagine just like you're, you're eight days, eight days. I know. And it's like, hear something or see something and you're like, oh my God. And then it's just, it's been hours and it's like, yeah. 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 It's, it's incredibly sad to think about what this would have been like. Cineproc's chief reported that they searched 25 trails where the girls could have been, but they hadn't found anything. And there was no activity on the girls' phones on April 8th or 9th. On the 8th, Chris's parents arrived in Boquete and Cineproc's chief reported that they searched 25 trails where the girls could have been, but they hadn't found anything. He said that these areas were every area the girls could have been. On the 9th, Cineproc started using search dogs to locate the girls, but once again, they found nothing. And on April 10th, at 5.15 a.m., someone attempted to power up Lazanne's phone again, but it's still dead at this point and doesn't turn on fully. The next day, April 11th, Chris's iPhone was powered on at 10.51 a.m. It was at 22% at this point. It was left on for 64 minutes and then turned off again. From there, it was never powered on again. We don't know what the battery was at when it was turned off, but it seems pretty likely that there was some charge left in it. Cineproc and Sanafront spent the night in a search area once again. They also continued to use call and light signals. But after the 14th, searches were scaled down. Cineproc and Sanafront had combed the jungle extensively. They commented that if the girls were really in the jungle, they would have found them by then. Two more weeks passed and the girls still remained missing. The family was still without answers. So on April 30th, the families offered a $30,000 reward for the return of their daughters, whether it was the girls alive or their complete remains. Now keep in mind, that is a ton of money in Panama. That kind of money would incentivize a lot of locals who know the area well to look for the girls. Multiple fundraisers were held in the Netherlands to fund the search efforts. And on May 25th, 18 volunteers and 12 search dogs from RHWW Rescue Dogs left the Netherlands bound for Panama. They were planning on searching there until June 4th. Originally, they were planning on searching as early as April 7th, but the Dutch government wasn't taking the necessary steps to request for legal assistance to Panama. But anyways, these dogs searched around the Baru Volcano, the Caldera Hot Springs, the Hidden Waterfalls, and El Pianista. They also searched different locations in Boquete as well as Feliciano's house, but the dogs didn't hit on anything. No trace of the girls were found, and the exhausted searchers went home empty-handed. But new discoveries later in June somehow bring more questions than answers. Because on June 12th, the Panamanian prosecutor's office received a call that a no-bay woman found Lazan's backpack in part of the Serpent River locally known as the Culebra. It was sitting in the riverbed, partially caught under a rock and a piece of driftwood. This spot was a 14-hour walk from the Mirador. Inside the backpack, investigators found $87, five quarters, the girl's two cell phones, Lazan's camera and its padded carrying case, two bras, a plastic water bottle with water still inside, and Lazanne's passport. Many reports say that the backpack was found completely dry, but according to Panamanian police reports, the backpack was found wet on the inside and outside. It was in good general condition, but it was dirty and damaged. There were bits of soil, remnants of leaves inside of the bag. The phones inside the backpack were wet and needed to be completely dry before investigators could extract any data from them. 
The data extraction would have taken them about a month. Lizanne's phone was wet, but it was still in working condition. The camera and Chris's phone were both wet. Due to the water damage, both of those devices weren't working anymore, but that doesn't mean that their memory cards weren't still able to be recovered. Many sources incorrectly state that all of the items were found in good condition, and the items were neatly packed inside. They also say things like the backpack was dry or had no damage, which is not the case. So what was wrong with the backpack? Well, there were deep scratches on the plastic buckles for one, discoloration on the fabric as if the bag had been tossed about in the rocks and water. There were also some frayed holes in the backpack as well. However, the metal on the girls' bras were only slightly rusted and the paper money hadn't decomposed yet, so this would imply that the backpack wasn't in water for very long, but again, this is up for interpretation. The backpack was found in a riverbank near the tiny village of Alto Romero by a Nobe woman. She found the backpack while she was tending to her nearby rice paddy. The woman said she'd been in that spot the day before and the backpack was not there, but there are some conflicting reports about how that woman discovered the backpack. Some reports say she and her husband went to the spot to bathe and wash clothes and that she hadn't been to that spot in a very long time. So that means she was not there the day before and we don't know how long the backpack had actually been there. So we don't know the exact circumstances for sure, which makes some people suspicious about the backpack discovery. But regardless, she brought the backpack home to her husband or she and her husband brought the backpack back home and they turned that backpack over to the police. Journalists Kinga Phillips and J.J. Kelly went on their own expedition to Panama for the documentary Lost in the Wild. Really, really good stuff. And in that episode, they interviewed the woman who discovered the backpack. She said she and her husband went to that spot. She went to bathe and wash clothes. She found the backpack and they went back to Alto Romero and they turned it over directly to the police. The villagers also said they were hesitant to talk to Kinga or J.J. or really anyone for that matter because it had been a long time since the disappearances and they wanted to forget about them. But probably most importantly, they wanted that $30,000 reward money that was promised, which they apparently never got, so their reluctance is understandable. But anyways, we're going to now talk about the investigation into the SD card found in the camera, as you're probably wondering what was, you know, what's up with that. Obviously, we know the pictures that were on the camera, but the camera itself was water damaged and didn't work. However, that doesn't mean SD cards can't still be accessed. When Dutch authorities checked the SD card, they found all those eerie night photos as well as the rest of the photos from the trip. In all, they found 470 photo files and seven video files. 133 of these photos were taken on or after April 1st. None of the videos were taken on or after April 1st. They found traces of 64 deleted photos and four video files that were deleted before March 28th. They recovered 40 of these photos and the four videos. So these deletions appear to be unrelated to the girls going missing, just Lizanne cleaning up the contents normally. But investigators could recover these photos and videos at least partially. Normally, when someone manually deletes a photo, whether it's off of a phone or a camera, forensic investigators can still recover it fairly easily. I mean, most tech-capable tech people know how to do this as well. This isn't like a special special skill set. There's literally free software you can download to oh, recover really? deleted files. Yeah, I've mm-hmm. done it for your YouTube videos before that we've accidentally deleted. Oh, yeah. You oh accidentally deleted them on the memory card. And Some as long as you don't mode. format the card. Right. And you just hit delete on it. The files okay. are still there. Yeah. So this happens because the file leaves behind traces of its data. Even after it's been fully deleted to fully delete a file, leave no traces behind. You need to use a secure erase software. And technically, like, there's different levels of deletion. So even if you did format it, if you know the right software to use, you could potentially still recover it, although it's much, much harder and isn't guaranteed to fully recover it 
to the point where you could actually view the photo or the the video. But you know, forensic investigators do have some more tools at their disposal, so it is still possible. But it would require some technical expertise to to get to this this point and accomplish that. But there was one very particular file that the investigators could not recover because there were no traces of it left behind at all. And this is the very famous photo 509. Now, this is super interesting. There's no way of knowing whether or not 509 was a photo or a video, but we can reasonably infer it was a photo. It's up to your interpretation whether it was a photo or video and what that could mean for the case. But going forward, for simplicity's sake, we're just going to refer to it as photo 509. What makes photo 509 so compelling is it's the photo in between the day photos and the night photos. It's that transition in between um, where everything seems fine and then the night photos taken a week later when everything is definitely not fine. And we don't know when exactly this photo was taken. In fact, we don't even really know if it was manually taken at all. And when Dutch investigators looked at the SD card, they saw that image 509 was missing and that there are no traces left from the file at all. Again, they found traces left by all other deleted photos and videos on the SD card, but nothing from 509. So it's super, super unusual. It has been speculated that Lizanne deleted the photo off the camera intentionally or maybe accidentally. But if she did, it would have left traces, which it didn't. Therefore, she probably didn't. To delete 509 completely, someone would have needed to use a computer. And this doesn't mean they would have just plugged it in and deleted it off the SD card because that would also leave traces behind. They would have needed a special software and have a background knowledge to erase the photo to the point where even forensics couldn't recover it. And that leaves us with three to four options for how this photo could have disappeared. The missing photo could have been caused by a malfunction. It has been debated how likely it is that a malfunction could have occurred. And I don't know, do you want to debate on that a little bit? Because... In my mind, that makes no sense. What are yeah, the chances I mean, this malfunctioned pretty, for this photo in between the day and the night photos? I yeah, just, it's slim to none. Definitely exceptionally rare. Yeah. And although it's not not impossible. No, of course not. I've seen SD cards so do weird things before. I think anybody who's used a camera and SD cards, depending on I'd be curious to, to know what the SD card brand was. And because it's like, yeah, the camera is writing the data to the card, but the card is ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, storing the information and allowing it to be written to the card. So sometimes the cards do malfunction depending on what kind of card it is. But again, it's very, very rare. But what it, the camera writing in attempting to write a file have like malfunction to where it, it couldn't write it to the SD card, but the SD card registered that something was there but and the then, chances of that you know research that i looked at that tested this um assigned a 0.007 percent uh probability to such a malfunction at least tiny amount tiny amount but they did test it in normal conditions they they weren't testing it by dropping it or mm. putting it in water yeah. because obviously that's you know cost and uh, very time intensive and um so they had to take it in normal conditions and Uh, The writers of a book I consulted for this case contacted Canon, which is the camera manufacturer, and they said such a malfunction would be virtually impossible. But at the same time, I don't know if the the people that at Canon can say if you fell and hit a rock 
what's the likelihood that it would cause this malfunction? Like, I don't know if there's a way to empirically test that, you know? Probably not. And so it's like, I think just randomly it happening, just when you're trying to take pictures normally, it would be like exceptionally rare. But camera manufacturers also have an interest in like overstating how reliable and stuff their, right. their cameras are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd imagine, That's a good point. yeah, maybe like water damage or, you know, some people think that that photo was taken around the time the first 911 call was taken, that they took photo 508, everything was normal. And then possibly Lizanne or someone holding the camera fell, maybe hit a rock or water or both. There was an injury. This is what caused 509 to happen, a, a malfunction related to that. And then emergency services were called. Which is just a theory, but so I don't know. It's really hard. I still feel like the chances are so so slim, but it's it's possible. We certainly can't rule it out, and we'll come back to it later. And I feel like too, and I f- swear I've seen this before, just in our own work and dealing with cameras and SD cards. I feel like I've seen cameras skip numbers before, like skip the file, like the file names get skipped. Like sometimes it'll write. 508 and then it'll just skip to 5010. I'm pretty sure I've seen that my, myself. James is where, backing you up back there. Yeah. Our photographers. Yeah, I was going to say like I'm pretty sure cameras do do stuff like that where the the actual file names aren't always like succinct. Like they will actually skip over cuz sometimes I'll be looking I'll be like transferring a bunch of footage and I'll be looking at the SD card and I don't trust the numbers because sometimes they're out of order. Sometimes there's missing numbers. So I'll usually just manually click the files to make sure. And I can swear to you that there's been times where I've had all my files selected and I start looking at the numbers and they're they're missing numbers. Mm. So I think to me, that makes a lot of sense that could have happened. Does that happen to you a lot, James? He's not mic'd, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So okay. I think I think that's definitely what could have happened there. Hmm. Either that or somebody who had access to the camera at a forensic level accidentally deleted. But I feel like that's kind of unlikely, too. I feel like this was a, just a technical malfunction. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if they accidentally deleted it, it's still going to be there, you know, to right. to recover. And Lizanne would have had to press four successive buttons to like hmm. accidentally delete it, just holding it. And again, it would have left traces. So well, it's like the likelihood of that is pretty much zero. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm more so talking about the Panamanian authorities when they're reviewing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And that before it got to the person that leaked it, whoever had handled it initially accidentally deleted it. But I feel like that's also unlikely. Well, of course, there's also a theory that the photo was intentionally deleted by a third party. Maybe someone who had bad intentions deleted the photo because it showed criminal activity or something incriminating or maybe they were in it i mean who who knows what it could have been it's been theorized that maybe this was someone nefarious who knows what happened to the girls or it was like you said panamanian authorities engaging well i guess you didn't put it that way but there are people that think it could have been deleted by the panamanian authorities as part of a cover-up like it showed something and they didn't want it to get out there so they just deleted it there's a lot of people that speculate that it they're, they were worried it could have hurt their tourism industry. Which I think is valid. I think it's valid. I think they don't want people to know about but, this. Okay, yeah. You you don't think the theory is no. very valid, though? No. I don't think they would have. But as far know. as like I don't know. insinuating the authorities in Panama 
would want to kind of sweep this under the rug and not make a big deal of it. Sure. No. Cause you know, they want tourists to be there, but again, I don't think that's, but don't they want applicable to this case? Solve it. I mean, I, that theory just doesn't really hold up for me. I think I lean more towards it was a mouse, a mistake, not a malfunction where it was deleted on accident, but I think it was the numbers were wrong or something along those lines. Yeah. I think the camera just messed up because mm-hmm. they think also, you got to think of cameras as like computers too. Yeah. So digital cameras are far less complex than a DSLR to a, you know, a much higher, higher grade camera. So the computer chips in those, the power at which they take pictures is, is far less than a much better camera with a high, high tech lens. So I think there is a larger probability for error with this little Canon power shot. And I think if you were to go look at reviews of this camera online, you'd find a lot of people have issues with these digital cameras. I mean, they they malfunction all the time, they break, and it's very likely that the camera or the SD card, we, who knows what kind of SD card was in there, because SD cards do matter, as we know in our business. Got to have good SD cards, because if you have some cheap gas station SD card, stuff can get messed, you know, your photos and videos can get messed up real quick. So that's another question I have is what kind of SD card it was. And I don't think we know that. Let me double check. I'm pretty sure we don't though. But it is important to remember that on June 17, 2014, four days after the police obtained the backpack and its contents, someone with the Panamanian investigators made edits to the photos. Oh, it was a SanDisk. Oh, it was a SanDisk memory card. Okay. And those are good. Yeah. I mean, there's different levels of them, but it'd probably be fine for... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he Mm -hmm. probably doesn't use SanDisk, but... Yeah, there's different read and write speeds for the cards. But for like a Sony PowerShot digital camera, you don't need like a super expensive SD card because it's not going to be able to write the the images to the, the card that fast anyway because mm-hmm. it's kind of a low-grade camera, you know? Yeah. At least three of the photos have additions to the file names indicating that they were rotated in Windows Photo Viewer before they were saved back to the memory card, which that to me makes sense. Obviously, they're trying to like look at it on the computer uh, the exit data also shows that many of the photos were brightened to see their contents better, which also makes sense for the authorities to do. Also, whoever examined the photos inadvertently created thumbnails for each of them, which are automatically created by Windows Photo Viewer, gotta love it, and then deleted those thumbnails. Which, again, this is kind of sloppy work because if you're really dealing with evidence like this, you should be taking a copy of things and manipulating the copies as opposed to the originals where you could potentially mess something up that might be important right you might brighten it and the evidence can only be seen when it's dark and then you have no way to go back once you've edited and saved the photo so they should have been using a copy of the sd card's contents but they did not so definitely not best practice finally the last option is that the girls took photos up to 508 with one memory card then maybe they switched it out put in a separate one and then took 509 and then switched again, but that seems very unlikely to me. Um, and there's no evidence of a second memory card existing. But let's take a look at the rest of the contents of the backpack, and let's talk about the issue of the bras. Both Chris and Lizanne's bras were found inside the backpack. These were colorful underwire bras that don't look the most comfortable. I wouldn't know. What do you ladies say about the underwire bras? I hate Why would them. They? They're the worst thing yeah. in the world. Underwire bras. That's what suck. I hear. Haven't put one on in years. <laughs> But like, I still do. I think it's I can't interesting. Get away wearing them, but I think it's interesting sh- that they. I mean, I guess it makes sense to me 
kind of why they were wearing those and not sports bras if they were planning to do uh what seemed like a shorter day hike and it wasn't you know yeah. super intensive or strenuous um and the fact that they took them off makes a lot of sense to me like oh, that's yeah. the first thing i would do same i know to i be can't, honest even how many times you say like i gotta take this off because it's so uncomfortable oh yeah it looks uncomfortable. I can imagine having like time. a wire yeah. pressed against well, your chest. Well, especially like, if you're mm -hmm. in the rainforest, it's hot. You're oh, sweating. Yeah. It's, yep. You're getting rained on. Mm -hmm. It's probably like chafing really bad. It's and if probably, you start to feel panicky, I feel more like constricted yeah, in you, it. Yeah. When I feel stressed out, bra comes off immediately. <laughs> that used to, when I wear a lot of, when I used to wear a lot of underwire bras, it was like the best part of the day. It was like oh the my first God, thing yeah. you wanted to do. First like, thing yep. you want to do. And it's, yep. nobody's looking at you. Obviously, like they're not, if they're lost in the jungle, like they're not with anyone. There's nobody yeah and i mean it's yeah it's a it's an infection risk because you're wet from the sweat and the yep. rain it's yep. chasing that's a good point skin. too you're gonna get like skin lesions and stuff and that's yep so yeah. it makes sense that they took them off and somebody didn't remove them off of them i mean i guess it's like it's anything possible but i mean i guess there's logical reasons for taking them off themselves i think so for sure yeah i know like a few people who say they feel more secure in them and again like i'm not familiar with their body types to like sense so like maybe it they felt more supported with them on at first and like that's why they were chose to wear them going out but i can get the argument that like maybe taking it off you feel a bit more vulnerable but at yeah. the same time the pain would just the chafing would be yeah for days yeah, yeah. Jungle, i don't think you're like, that worried about vulnerability no no and plus no. like bras are unless they're not um like padded at all and even then still like they're kind of like sponges mm -hmm. So the second yes. they get wet, yep. like even if like we've all sweat in a bra and then it gets oh, yeah. really uncomfortable. I can't imagine that you're out there for days you're, and it's mm -hmm. like wet. That's the first thing I would want gone. Totally. This is kind of weird, but Hans Kremers, he said he talked to many girls, Chris and Lizanne's age and asked them if they take off their bras if they were lost in the jungle and the girls all said they wouldn't. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about... it might just been who he asked. But I don't know how much validity there is to that. I feel like if we were to run a poll on our own audience, most of them would agree. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it's a personal preference. I'm going to go with what you guys think because I don't, I don't know. I think if you ask any woman in this building. They'd say they would have taken them off themselves. Mm -hmm. It really starts to hurt after a while. After the backpack was found, Feliciano and five other volunteers decide to search the Culebra for any other pieces of evidence. The no-bay man whose wife found the backpack was part of the team as well. And sadly, through these searches, it was confirmed that the girls were no longer alive. On June 19th, Chris's hip bone and Lizanne's shoe with her foot still inside it were found by these searchers. The remains had washed up under a tree on the banks of the Serpent River. The foot was in an advanced state of decay with skin still attached to it. Three fractures were found in the metatarsals, which are the bones that connect your ankle to your toes. And many reports state that Lizanne's foot was broken in 28 places, but it was really just the three fractures. The reality is they found 28 of her bones. Sometime around June 22nd, investigators were able to confirm that the foot belonged to Lizanne. Shortly after this, Chris's shorts were discovered by a group of searchers floating in the Serpent River more than five kilometers from Mirador and a half mile from where the backpack was found. According to many reports, the shorts were apparently found neatly folded and dry on top of a rock, but this is not the case, though. 
The shorts were wet and submerged in the water. They'd been caught on a rock, much like any other piece of debris would have been. They were unbuttoned and unzipped, and there was also damage to them as well as frayed holes in them. That's a big thing to know because that is misreported like yeah. pretty much everywhere that they were folded. That and the, the you know, perfect condition or good yes. condition backpack is mm-hmm. like two of the most pervasive yep. falsehoods, rumors in this case. The, and mm-hmm. then another big one that we'll get to later. But Yeah. One of Chris's hiking boots had been discovered by Feliciano and his team a few days before they found the shorts. Her foot was not inside the boot. Then on June 25th, it was confirmed that the pelvic bone discovered belonged to Chris. It had suffered a fracture that could have been caused by a fall or it could have been caused by just the rough waters of the Serpent River. So the shorts may have slipped off of Chris's body while it decomposed. It's also possible that if she fractured her pelvis, she took the shorts off herself to relieve some pressure or discomfort. Cena Proc and local volunteers continued to search for more remains in late July. In those searches, the teams found multiple bone fragments along the Serpent River. One of the fragments was confirmed to be a piece of Chris's rib. The other bone fragments belonged to animals, an unidentified child, an unidentified woman, and an unidentified man. The fragments were all found at a distance from each other and not all in one spot. According to some reports, these unidentified remains belonged to local indigenous people who died of natural causes. The rainfall had washed out their graves and carried the bones down the river. A few days later, three more bones were found. The bones were parts of Lizanne's left femur, tibia, and left foot. Many sources report that the foot had been cleanly cut or severed, but this isn't exactly the case. This doesn't mean that her foot had to be intentionally cut by something. In reality, this was likely a case of disarticulation caused by the body decomposing in a stream. The water over time would have decomposed the weaker ankle joint connecting to the foot, thereby disconnecting it from the ankle and from the rest of the leg. Then the foot was sort of preserved in the boot, causing it to decompose the way that it did. Which all makes a lot of sense. Makes total sense. So Lizanne had been suffering from severe periostitis in her tibia, the leg bone. And periostitis is an inflammation of the periosteum, which is the sheath that covers your bones. And this infection would be consistent with the overexertion from excessive walking. So it makes a lot of sense. And Lizanne's case of periostitis led to an infection. And once the infection spread, it would have made walking extremely difficult and painful, if not totally impossible, within just a few short days. There was also a piece of skin that had been found along with Lizanne's bones. And some reports say that this piece of skin belonged to Lizanne, but testing showed it actually belonged to an animal, likely a cow. So this is the other big rumor that... Mm -hmm. um, there was a ball of Lizanne's skin found along the river and it was like not super decomposed, which wouldn't make sense. And this was reported by a Panamanian journalist, um, but there was no follow-up and later testing again showed that this was a cow. But this is like, this rumor is, a lot of people are like, oh, well, it has to be foul play because of this Lizanne's skin. And it's, Mm. yeah, definitely important to highlight and clear up. So both the Panamanian forensic team and the Netherlands Forensic Institute, or NFI, worked on analyzing the evidence. And Dutch authorities working on the case announced that the girls' deaths were most likely the result of an accident. However, they did admit that they couldn't rule out foul play. Meanwhile, the Panamanian authorities were publicly speculating about the possibility of criminal activity in the case. Their attorney general publicly stated that this case was a crime against personal integrity. 
Lizanne and Chris's DNA was not found on the backpack, and this definitely seems odd, but it's possible that their DNA was washed away while it made its way down the river. However, according to the NFI, 30 prints were found on the backpack, and none of the Nobe people who handled the bag were fingerprinted, and those fingerprints were left unidentified. Apparently, this was because by the time the bag reached the Netherlands, too many people had handled it, so any results would have just been meaningless. There were also three fingerprints found on the phone, its SIM card, and a piece of tape attaching the SIM card to the phone. Only one of them was good enough quality to be examined, and it was the print found on the tape. And this fingerprint was run through the system, but it didn't come up in any databases, and the tape was placed on the SIM card by a Panamanian investigator, so it couldn't have come from anywhere else. So the prints were attributed to the Panamanian investigator who had handled the phone. Fingerprints from anyone who was involved in the searches or handled the remains were not taken. Now we're going to talk about the issue of the remains and their condition when they were discovered. The forensic pathologist's report notes that Chris's rib and hip bones were bleached. The forensic anthropologist stated that this bleaching could have come from sunlight exposure or phosphorus in the soil. By bleaching, we basically mean the color of the bones were paler or lighter than their original color. For those that don't know, our bones are not white, but a yellowish pinkish color and can become bleached a lighter shade after death. Traces of phosphorus were reportedly found on Chris's hip bone and rib bone. Phosphorus can cause bones to bleach, and there's a lot of discussion on how these traces got on Chris's bones and how they could have been absent from Lizanne's bones. Some people believe that a third party had chemically tampered with the remains. Chemical compounds like lime, which would leave behind traces of phosphorus, are sometimes, but not as often as you think, used by criminals to speed up human decomposition. They are also often used by farmers, including coffee farmers in the area. The um the phosphorus and the bones. This was like a big thing for me when I was like, you know, theorizing about this case. I was like, these bones, you know, it makes me think that there was some foul play involved. But again, like a lot of things in this case, a lot of things were misreported. And that same um, Panamanian journalist who reported about the ball of skin uh, wrote a news article stating that she kind of heavily implied that investigators found lime on the bones, which they didn't. Um, and I think that there are a lot of normal explanations for the phosphorus. She said that, you know, it's not expected that there would be phosphorus in the soil there because it's not volcanic soil, which the volcano is like 12 miles away and volcanoes can carry those ash clouds with the phosphorus like right. thousands of miles. So, um, oh, and they also didn't um, take uh, soil samples, which you know, of the area where the bones were discovered, which some people are like, you know, Panamanian cover-up because there were no soil samples taken. The issue is like a bit more complicated. Do I think there should have been soil samples taken? Yes, but it's hard to really say from where because they didn't have exact locations for where their remains were found based on how they were collected, based on how they feasibly could have been collected, all things considered. Um, But basically, again, there's no confirmed traces of lime found on the bones and it seems likely that the bleaching could have been caused by the sun, calcium phosphorus, or calcium phosphate, one of the two. It's um, one of the main components. Oh, it's calcium phosphate is one of the main components of our bones. So as the body decomposes, it like breaks down this compound. And so the phosphates are deposited in the soil. And it's, it's just possible there were phosphates in the soil to begin with. Yeah. Mm. So that's sunlight. It, it could have been sunlight or phosphorus, as the forensic investigator said. It doesn't mean... Phosphorus on the bones had to be lime, had to be some third party agent or something. And it's also, you know, if you're going 
to dispose of remains and you're a criminal, quicklime or lime will will desiccate the remains. So it'll dry them out, which is good if you want to conceal odors. But human decomposition requires microorganisms and uh, scavengers and insects and stuff like that to to decompose the remains. And the use of lime and drying out the remains would discourage that. Mm. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. It, it almost kind of mummifies remains in a way, and it doesn't seem like an intuitive way if you're trying to get rid of evidence. Yeah. So Why wouldn't you just like burn them? Right. It, you know, it there's other ways to, be... to destroy the human remains than just put lime on them. Right. I think it's people reading into the bleaching yeah, a little too much, and I this journalist too. was clearly trying to make some things happen for themselves. Well, then there's also reports that there was no tissue found on the bones. Like the bones were just clean, but there was a flap of Chris's skin attached to her hip bone, which was found by investigators during normal forensic examinations. So the next question is probably one that you're wondering, where are the rest of the bones? Again, it kind of seems weird that they didn't find any larger bones like skulls or you know arm or leg bones, but it could have been the case that scavengers got to these bones or heavier bones like the skull sank to the bottom of the river because remember the changinola river is nicknamed the meat grinder rocks and fast moving water would have destroyed or buried many bones that haven't been discovered yet i mean think about all the other bone fragments they yeah, found yeah so you know that there's other human remains in this this river that are being ground up by the force of the river and all the rocks that most likely the rest of the remains are in fragments at this point as well and then another rumor that was out there or report that was out there was that the bones had no markings on them. However, they actually did have gnaw marks consistent with small animals like rodents or scavengers. They also had root marks, meaning the bones were stained by plant matter. If you see the photos, it's pretty clear that there's plant matter there. This would indicate that the bones had been sitting on soil for some time before they were dragged down the river. The autopsy report also found that there were no marks in the bones that indicated some sort of violent act occurred. There was no evidence of dismemberment, so this might be where the whole no marks on the bones rumor comes from, but there is a, a, a plausible explanation that there was marks on the bone. There wasn't scavengers. But ultimately, a cause and manner of death couldn't be determined from the remains. There just simply isn't enough bones for the forensic pathologist to analyze. But regardless, the fact that the remains had been positively identified as belonging to the girls was just heartbreaking news for the families. And even though it answered an important question that weighed on them for 10 agonizing weeks, the discovery of the remains didn't answer many of their burning questions. The families felt as though the Panamanian investigators had not done enough to look for their daughters, which I agree with. Full, I fully agree with them, yes. Fully. like They should have jumped on this immediately, mm -hmm. immediately done ground searches, immediately get the dogs out there. Anytime I hear of that fucking 48-hour rule, it pisses me off. It's so insane. That, that in some parts of the world that's still a thing mm -hmm. and it's and sometimes you hear about it here too even though they're not supposed to but well and i think it's frustrating too like a lot of this the search was bogged down by just like you know top heavy bureaucracy yeah. when it comes to like Cineproc or even like the dutch authorities and not getting the legal channels to approve the dogs and you know right just a bunch of politics that yeah. slowed it down mm -hmm. in august of 2014 the kremers family did their own expedition to panama Accompanied by guide Feliciano, Chris's parents, Ruli and Hans, walked the same trail that the girls did on that fateful April 1st, 2014. 
They concluded that there was only one direction the girls could have gone in that pass, so they couldn't have gotten lost. The only time the path opened up to show more pass was an hour and a half after the last photo was taken. Here are Ruli and Hans explaining what they concluded. I will read the um, <laughs> subtitles on this for you guys. But okay, it is now about 35 minutes since the point where the last photo was taken around 1400 p.m. 35 minutes later, you are here. We have not seen a single cliff. No cliffs have been passed in the meantime. Or nothing else where you can fall into or slip into. It is a complete mystery. We think that between here and the small creek where the last photo of Chris was taken, that something has happened here. If they had broken something and got injured, they would have definitely stayed on the trail. And alongside the trail, there are no steep ravines or slopes where you can crash into. And when where you can get stuck without being seen, no. It is good to have walked the trail ourselves now. Now, that whole stretch. Sorry, some of this is kind of translated weird. So now we have seen with our own eyes that you have nowhere to go here when you walk on this path. Wow. The only thing you do when you think it is getting too late is that you turn around and walk back. Exactly. And of course you can get stranded halfways, but then, even then, you stay on the trail. And then you stay on the trail and spend the night there somehow, and then you continue. Her face. Oh my gosh. I know. It's so heartbreaking. So painful. So once the Dutch investigation concluded that the girls likely died of an accident, the Panamanian authorities followed in their lead. And in November of 2014, Panamanian prosecutor Betzida P.T. declared the girls had a hiking accident where they were dragged to death by the river. Lizanne's family did eventually accept the accident conclusion, but Chris's family didn't at first. The Kremers family believed that there was some sort of, you know, element of foul play in the girls' deaths. The family actually hired a lawyer and sued the Panamanian prosecutor's office for their handling of the case, but eventually they dropped their suit against the Panamanian justice system. The families of Chris and Zan obviously wanted to be able to lay their daughters to rest as best as possible. They held memorial services for the girls in the Netherlands, but they still wanted to try and bring back as much of their remains as possible. So in January of 2015, a team put together by the Kremers family with the blessing of the Froon family made one last trip out to Boquete. The investigators included a forensic anthropologist, a DNA specialist, a criminologist, and four dogs from RHWW. And also well-known Dutch forensic pathologist Frank Van de Goot joined them. And unfortunately, though, this investigation didn't turn up any more remains. After an extensive investigation, the team concluded that the girls couldn't have gotten lost on the trail, but they also said it was highly unlikely that the girls were victim of any sort of violent crime. The team concluded that the girls had some sort of fatal accident on their hike, most likely a slip and fall from some sort of cliff. Both families accepted this explanation at this point. They do not want to be contacted about this case anymore, and with that, the case was closed in March of 2015. The Kremers family's lawyer, Enrique Aroca, still thinks the girls were murdered, and he thinks that the family accepted the accident theory because they needed some sort of psychological closure. 
finding what he deems the truth would be too much for them to bear. And a Dutch gossip magazine reported in 2019 that to this day, Hans Kremer still has some doubts about the Panamanian investigation. Again, this is coming from a Dutch gossip magazine, so take, uh, take it with a grain of salt. There was no sign at the Mirador telling the girls to go back when they disappeared, but now there is a sign that reads, quote, end of trail, no return passage, so tourists don't continue on. A cross has also been placed at the Mirador as a memorial to Chris and Lizanne. Maria Vest and Jurhan Snuren, the authors of Lost in the Jungle, are reportedly planning an expedition to Panama next year. They've said they're returning with a pathologist, a rescue team, and documentary producers to check out a potential new search area. But as of this recording, no official date has been set. So we'll see what happens with that, I guess. Who knows what that area will be. I think the search area is likely huge at this point, considering how far the remains from the backpack were found. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. could be miles and miles away. So, After hearing all the facts of this case, what do you guys think? Well, here? I am. I'm pretty convinced that this was an accident, that there was an injury. They got lost. Um, there's all types of, you know, poisonous animals, dangerous animals out there that they could have had encounters with. You know, that that river is very intense. I, I just, mean, I yeah. think this was accidental. I don't think there was foul play. That's just my opinion. Well, and one of the, things that comes up a lot is the monkey bridges which the local indigenous people used to cross the serpent river and in the in that lost in the wild show they the woman attempts to go across it and it is sketchy it is sketchy and it's dangerous it's made out of these cable wires that if you've ever touched the, i've cut myself real good on cable oh wires my God, before yeah, I remember, I remember that. that that was crazy yeah mm-hmm. um so it's very easy to hurt yourself injure yourself you're basically balancing on a wire you're like tight roping across this river this raging river it's very possible you could fall off of it i mean indigenous people fall off of it and die uh i know they interviewed some people who were like you know would you go across it and they're like absolutely not and if you were to fall you're dead i mean you're gonna hit rocks you're gonna be dead almost instantly um i don't know that they necessarily went across and that's how how they died if it was an accident or one of them could have yeah. and then the other tried to help them and i think it's possible yeah are there any uh you know kind of things that stick out to you weird things maybe unanswered questions that would lean you guys the other way i mean of course there's a lot of weird things and unanswered questions but none of them really lead me in the direction of foul play mm-hmm. there's things that are just odd but i think when you're in an odd situation like that and you're stuck and have you know, you're going to do desperate things. And some of the stuff they did may may not make a lot of sense. You know, these pictures that they took, they're very confusing. The, the photo of the hair is certainly eerie and weird. Um, the photo of the, the red trash with a stick, it's confusing. But I don't think none of that to me says foul play. I think the only thing for me that would really raise alarm bells is if photo 509 did exist and was deleted on purpose. Um, by the authorities, maybe that would lead me as like, okay, well, were they trying to cover something up? Did they know something? But other than that, I mean, yeah, like Kendall said, a lot of it's very eerie and like disturbing. But I think a lot of it leads to 
just a really unfortunate event and Mm -hmm. they succumb to the elements and i just don't think they fully realized what they were headed into that day Mm -hmm. they were kind of in over their heads and they had the exploratory passion and wanting to see everything and i get that and sometimes people taurus end up in dangerous situations when you're not familiar with what you're doing and of course they did have some experience but even even the most experienced people run into trouble out in terrain like this it's just brutal out there and especially the fact that there wasn't anyone looking for them right away that's the biggest mistake i think that's that's the most upsetting thing about all of this is that they could have rescued them. They easily could have, and they could still be here today. Maybe possibly, though. possibly unless one of them had a horrible injury or I don't know. I think I, I, I think it's very evident that they went off trail, that they that they left the trail at some point. I don't think it's went that off evident. the trail. Is it that or evident? or beyond the mirador? The trail gets very very hard to follow. And eventually, the farther you go, it's very easy to make a wrong turn. And Especially as soon as in the dark, and, and like maybe they were still on the trail, but night hit sooner than they thought. And coming back down the trail, they just made a wrong turn at some point. It'd be very easy. Their mm-hmm. phones are dying. No, it's true. It's they true. have no light other than their their camera, which clearly to me, the camera is being used as light. I think the camera of the hair, as eerie as it is, is potentially one of them checking for an injury or something on the back of her head. Maybe she's like, can you look at the back of my my head real quick? There's something, you know, it's, it looked kind of mm. red, almost like maybe she was scratching. Maybe she got bit by maybe. by something. And but maybe wouldn't they clear the area of her scalp yeah, if that was maybe. the case? And then it seems, I don't know, the, the hair photo is weird. I get it's all weird. It, it all looks weird. I just think... But when you don't have the whole story and with how long they were out there, of course, things are going to look weird. Right. I just think this is one of those cases that because it is mysterious, because we don't have all the information that people and and there's people that are planting seeds into people's minds of like, oh, it was this or that, that the lore around it has started to to grow and people are you know the photos remind them of like Blair Witch Project it's got this kind of like same vibe to it and so people are are grasping at straws here when it comes to looking at the actual evidence and putting things in places where they don't actually exist in and going down this whole other path there is literally no evidence for foul play Give me one piece of evidence for foul play. No solid case. evidence. There's no, no at, at least all. that we know of, at least that we know of other mm-hmm. than the eerie photos. There's no, but that doesn't mean there's foul play at all. Yeah. Well, a lot of people have pointed fingers at certain people too. There are some like people that have died that are like loosely connected with the case, the taxi driver who drowned and then this kind of a interrelated network of like a youth gang. But to me, the evidence is pretty flimsy and unfortunately some people have really gone after like some of the guides that tried to help mm-hmm. find these girls mm-hmm. and Feliciano. One yeah, of Feliciano them. is yeah. people really have gone after him and been like, he did it, he did it. And that's insane. I don't think any of that's true. Yeah, he's out there like helping their family and I don't know. It's right. crazy. I think the foul play is much harder in this scenario because we 
pretty much know that they were alive for days after the first. Yeah. Because they're so one possibility they're hiking up this trail seems like a trail that other people you know go down and there's people that live right in right off of the trail it literally goes through like people's backyards i guess you you can see people's houses as you're going up and unless they would have had to been like kidnapped and held hostage most likely or everything is done by the perpetrator or the suspect in this case doesn't really make sense for that to happen because of the time frame of the photos the time frame of the phone calls i think because of the phone calls why would somebody who's going to murder these two girls start trying to call the emergency numbers that to me makes no sense why would they let them like use their phones right. like the minute that that happens it's like you're kidnapped you're kidnapping someone you're not going to exactly. be like use your phone to make yeah, it look like you're calling 911 yeah, and then right. over the next 10 days right we're gonna, gonna do it periodically sit, yeah for hours and take photos of the sky and then also you know get rid of the remains but not all of them yeah. and then you know also leave the camera out so the investigators can find it and the phone leave the and, backpack everything in mm-hmm, it not take mm-hmm. the money not take not take the money yeah like that that to me is very significant that yeah everything was found and I get some people like, well, that's suspicious. Why is it everything found? But the backpack was dirty, damaged. It was clearly, you know, went through its own shit too. So it's like. Well, I think that's one of the, the biggest problems with this case is there's so much misinformation out there that leads to other theories that people start going down that road yeah. and ignore the the true evidence. Like if, if the whole thing of like, oh, their clothes were folded neatly. Yeah. If that is reported everywhere and people take that as fact, then that's real sketchy looking. Yes. Why are their clothes folded? Mm-hmm. Like I could see how this is being twisted so much because people are just misreporting things. Yeah. To where people really think that it's something nefarious is going on. When in reality, you know, based on everything we just talked about, it really does seem like a a really just tragic accident that happened. Yeah. I mean, and people like really are kind of grasping at straws with things like a lot of people have talked about how clean her hair looks in that photo, mm-hmm. which is odd after eight days in the jungle. But if they were kidnapped, would what the kidnappers going to wash, wash their yeah. hair? Yeah. Like, it's just strange things that people are coming up with. And, if, and of course, when you, sh- you know, take a picture, the flash is going to make everything look shinier and better than it does if it was in just like daylight or something well they were manipulated too Mm -hmm. the we don't even have the official photos yeah i would love to see the photos the original ones what those looked like and i bet you we wouldn't have half the speculation that we have going on here because it'd be couldn't even tell what you're looking at for the most part Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. than what the flash can pick up they've enhanced the flash in all these photos so to me it looks like that was their source of light can i sorry you can finish. I was going to ask if I can read you guys a Reddit comment from someone that's seen the, maybe not the original, but like the case file photos. Like, yeah, sure. How have they the... seen that, I wonder? So this next Reddit comment too, I'm going to read. I think it's very interesting. And this comes from someone over at the website Imperfect Plan. And they have done countless, countless, countless hours researching this case, testing the cameras, doing analysis, analyses of like the night photos. They've gone to Panama on multiple expeditions taken all the videos like they've really done a phenomenal job investigating and as such they've been able to see 
all of the photos really um and that includes the night photos that have not been leaked because again only most of them were eventually leaked but not all of them and so people have asked on reddit like what can you talk about what are on these unleaked photos so he said in this one comment in my opinion some more insights can be gathered from the missing pictures there is nothing groundbreaking in those pictures however i believe the officials have not analyzed those pictures fully which is maybe understandable and there is information in them that rules out certain assumptions rules out some of the public theories and strengthens some hypotheses Hmm. i agree with that i think it supports i think if you analyze it you're going to come to the conclusion that a lot of these wild theories make no sense whatsoever what else like what else is there to gather from them other than what we've looked at today well i guess that's kind of what we don't know he doesn't he doesn't say that like it's going to rule out you know because you know the girls getting lost is still a public theory as is foul play so he's pretty non-specific and that's for a reason i think it's it's weird because he's like there's nothing groundbreaking but i think there's information you could get from them i mean you can only really speculate what's on those photos but Mm. or really almost how to interpret that comment yeah i just i i think you also have to look at the forensics they didn't find anything that suggests that they were dismembered again bodies were decomposed so maybe that evidence is gone but again i just go back to the backpack i go back to the phone calls to me none of that points to foul play happening here unless it was a predator whose only interest was to take advantage of these two girls which is possible and that's all he was interested in he took advantage of them or maybe held them captive in the the forest and while he was sleeping they took pictures that's what i'm saying is like when you start yeah you start start playing out the scenarios mm -hmm. of foul play or kidnapping or hostage or a serial killer it just there's too many holes for me to to want to go down that path Mm -hmm. all the evidence points to this being misadventure and unfortunately they got lost they either went off the trail they went farther than they anticipated it got dark they tried to come back and they got lost i mean you saw what it looks like out there imagine that in the pitch dark Mm -hmm. with no flashlights yeah. Your phones are only at 50% when you start, which sucks. And then you have a digital camera for your light. I mean, you are yeah. in a bad, bad position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people, like, I think a lot of people don't understand how common it is for people to die out in nature, in the mountains. We just yep. covered Kenny Veach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even people who have tons of experience. It, it does People happen. who, it is very easy to, to get overconfident even on a simple day hike and weather turns. I don't even know if it was overconfidence. I think they just had no idea what they were going into. It's evident from how they were so unprepared with a bottle of water, very little food. You know, they didn't have any sunscreen. They should have had a guide with them. Yeah. Miriam tried to warn them. Well, I think she warned them about the Baru. Oh, was it Baru? But some people do take a guide up to the Pianista. It doesn't seem like you necessarily need one if you know to turn around at the Mirador, which it seems kind of from all the evidence that we have and just kind of intuition. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, like clearly this is the end of it. I just don't turn think they, they understood. You know, she told her boyfriend the night before they were going on a walk. Yeah, well, this is a spur of the moment type of thing. Yeah. 
They're like, then, oh, let's take a quick walk. I up think there. the bras say a lot that they weren't in sports bras. And I don't know. Chris is wearing denim shorts. I mean, yeah, right. They did have hiking boots, but they did not look dressed like they're, mm-hmm. you know, going to go on anything longer than a day hike. I think maybe they just thought, oh, like, let's just take a peek and see what's back here because clearly it's a trail of some sort. And if you really go down the foul play road, I mean, if they were kidnapped and held and someone washed their hair, wouldn't they have made ransom? requests well and a lot of people point to the they say oh like it could have been a cartel thing which you know definitely exists down there but i think my thing with that is like you know oh they saw something that's explains photo 509 it's like what there was just a bunch of drug smugglers on the trail with big signs that said i'm a drug smuggler and if someone took a photo or was deleting photos that were evidence wouldn't they just take the whole whole camera yeah yeah, they'd be like, hang on one real quick. Hand me, me your camera. Yeah. Go through these and Let delete Let me pull one. the card, pull my laptop no. out and do a secure data. No, 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 no. No. No, this doesn't make any sense. I think it's possible that they crossed the, the river. I do too. They po- they it's maybe called the they, meat grinder. Maybe I mean, they crossed, God. they went across the monkey bridge and either they fell in, likely not because they were alive for days. So maybe they crossed it and then they went to the other side and just lost their way back. I mean, if you're out there hiking and you see this bridge, you're like, oh, that might be fun. I mean, they're 21, 22 years old. At that age, many of us would be like, oh, that looks kind of exciting to go across. I might try to go across that. A lot of people dispute that, be like, they absolutely wouldn't do that. They're not, you know, it's very, very dangerous. They wouldn't just go and attempt that, but it's a possibility. I think maybe if they were lost and not like truly like immobilized, injured, they it would make sense that they ended up farther down the river because it is like kind of a natural psychological thing where if you're lost, you think water yeah. will eventually equal people. So right. you keep following it down. Mm-hmm. They yes. just don't know that they're they're going further and further away right. from where they need to be. Yeah, I mean, at that point, you're desperate to try anything and you make the wrong move and it could cost right. you at all. But there are all types of wild theories. I mean, there are people who think that the girls were killed by cannibals in the jungle which is pretty insane i hate that theory too i do too i think it rests a lot on like really racist i agree the indigenous people yes on the the nobe people Mm -hmm. there's nothing to suggest that they're or just violent or or it's just indigenous people in general Mm -hmm. and they tried to that's the shitty part too is they didn't get paid for you know by the government for finding the remains they went out and searched because it is a lot of money for them of course you would and they have the access to that area that the government doesn't and they didn't they found remains and they didn't get paid of course not and they had all the police and you know all this flurry around their little village yeah and mm-hmm. people saying that they they're cannibals and shit i'd be like go yeah, away it's like, ridiculous yeah the, yeah a lot of these rumors are pretty frustrating or that it was like organ harvesting i'm like all right mm-hmm. like that's a that's a bit much and again doesn't explain that the days that they're alive, clearly calling for help. At what point were they met by organ harvesters? The last day? Yeah. They just happened to run into organ no, harvesters? I mean, it, it makes no sense. I think it's just people trying to make sense of the situation where we just, we don't know. You know, there's there's so much we don't know that it leaves people wanting to fill those gaps in their mind and and make something out of it, which it's really just a tragic accident, in my opinion. Yeah, I... I tend to agree with you i'm open to other possibilities but not without further evidence yeah i don't see anything that points to anything other than a accident here 
I want to say that we did get a lot of requests to cover this case, and it did take me so long because it was so intriguing. But then it's just like really frustrating when you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the research and you discover like a lot of these things that you thought were true that don't end up being. Yeah. 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 And I think that's what happens with a lot of cases and a lot of people get obsessed with them because mm-hmm. there's all these crazy they elements to all these to it. things that aren't true. You're just reading stuff online. And then when you actually like factually mm-hmm. research it, you're like, oh, none of that's true. Yeah. This is a lot more. It sounds like such a mystery. Straightforward such, than it. You know, but yeah. I just think, again, the internet loves to do this and they create lore around these cases mm-hmm. and they created it into this Blair Witch esque case or you know style of of story because of the photographs and everybody gets tripped up like oh over analyzing the photographs trying to see stuff that isn't there photoshop people claim that the yeah hike pictures are photoshopped okay yeah and then people just run wild with it i just feel bad for their parents too who have now come to the conclusion they've accepted you know what they've been told and they believe it was an accident. They they just want this all to stop, and and people are just going to keep digging right. it up, and you know, accusing all these other different people and digging into their lives. And I wonder how they feel about the authors of that book going back to Panama now to do another expedition with. Yeah. I don't know. The search. They might support it. I mean, maybe they'd like to find the rest of their remains, possibly. Oh, I'm sh- yeah. They definitely do. But yeah, I think it's it's the online speculation and and the wild, really out there theories that get really salacious that are probably hurtful or like bringing suspicion to innocent people yes and like looping in people that may or may not have anything to do with this i mean everyone's name out there like even the dutch boys had to be cleared by police that they they met yeah you know cab driver the Mm -hmm. guides like now their reputations are tarn you know well and bet zyda pt the prosecutor actually like pretty much lost her job over this wow and this poor woman was out like actually in one of the searches injured her leg or something to the point where she required surgery. Wow. And she still walks with a limp and you know, she's like, yeah, it's, I knew I was going to get canned, but I had to keep the job because I care for my disabled son and I need the money. It's just so heartbreaking that, that it kind of ended up like this with a lot of people. Yeah, it really is. She, you know, intentionally botched the case and she right. lost her job over it. Yeah, or accusing a conspiracy cover-up went without any evidence. So, I don't know. I'm really curious to hear what everybody's thoughts are out there. Yeah, definitely let us know your thoughts. I'm, I mean, open I'm sure to, some of you disagree with us and definitely want to hear. Yeah, I'm open to other perspectives for sure. I mm-hmm, just think mm-hmm. it's got to have, there's got to be some evidence to back that up though. Yeah. You can't just bring me some wild the what theory you wrote on kind of Reddit crazy. and be like, this is what happened if there's no concrete evidence here. I'm going on in... I'm going off what the evidence shows and the evidence shows that this was an accident. That's what the authorities came to the conclusion in this case. So I think until there's other evidence that says otherwise, I don't think there's really anything there, but curious to know what you think. Yeah, definitely. But thanks for hanging with this one. This was a quite the marathon. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting case though. It is interesting. And uh, obviously our hearts go out to the, the families and just, can't imagine what this has been like dealing and, with this and, and it still drives me nuts just thinking about what those days were like for them and and what truly happened you know we probably will never know well and just you know in those days 
leading up to when they're found, like holding out hope. Yeah. That maybe we'll find them alive and they're out there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to have it end this way is just always horrible. Yeah, it's incredibly sad. So young. Yeah, really sad. All right. Well, let us know your thoughts, everyone, here in the comments on YouTube. Or you can, if you're listening on an audio platform, you can head over to our Instagram account and let us know your thoughts there. That's at Mile Higher Pod. Is that right? Yes. yes. Um, let us know what you think. But that's we'll going to be it week. for us. Yeah. See you next week. We'll see you next week. Until then, keep on taking your mind a, a mile, mile higher. higher.